0: Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that atypical horror known as The
1: Exorcist 3.
0: On Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit either C for classic, I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, or A for atypical. Because who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and if you're scrubbing through this file, wondering if you'll find more information about the Gemini Killer, let me just tell
2: you, it is not in the file! <laughs> it is not
3: uh hello and i am father brian and i can't go home until the carp is asleep <laughs> getting more into Nolt, like nick nolte there uh, but uh, yeah. uh, there's a same kind of, of same energy note. right
0: same energy different uh, voice texture um but we're not alone here because you know us two priests brian couldn't handle this by ourselves so we have to call that's in true. another priest who uh we saw briefly like in one scene at a certain point, uh, and then he showed up to save the day. Uh, As he's doing now, Father,
1: Krishan Baker, welcome to the show, Krishan. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you for bringing me along on this exorcism that uh, I just randomly showed up to perform at the very final hour.
0: I know you were very busy of healing a wounded bird, I think is your your subplot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something to that effect.
0: Right, roughly, yes. So welcome everybody to uh, Exorcist 3, uh, is the topic of this particular episode, and that episode we should note is the season finale of our horror miniseries, our A for A typical choice, and is airing on All Hallows' Eve. So happy Halloween to all of you! Anyone else want to wish him a happy Halloween? I don't know if anyone else wanted to do that, but fine. Yes, uh, the, I care about the listeners. Uh,
3: <laughs> That's fine, Brian. <laughs> make sure you leave your milk and cookies out for uh, for Michael Myers or Jason, whoever you're. Uh, right, whoever you your, your slasher your belief uh,
0: system. Yes, right.
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> slasher be, choice. Yes, yeah. I'll be
3: leaving out you know bite
0: sized candies for Chucky, of course, as is. All exactly, wanted. of course. Um, but but yes, uh, happy Halloween, everyone. As uh, we talk about. A very odd movie to end on. Obviously, we have this system where we talk about an atypical choice. And I would argue, we we went through a couple different choices, but I think this one definitely fits. It's just, like, so atypical for the franchise it's a part of, for the time it was made, and just on, like, the basic filmmaking level of how horror movies were made by a major studio, technically. Uh, it's... So bizarre. And I had had history with this movie. I'm curious, Krishan, what is your history
1: with Exorcist 3 and The Exorcist in general? I grew up very devoutly Christian. Let's start there. Let's start there. I grew up very devoutly Christian. So um, I was actually not allowed to watch The Exorcist for an incredibly long time. I think I saw it for the first time, I believe my freshman year of college was the first time I saw The Exorcist. It was a movie that I appreciated and I had a lot of respect for at the time but it didn't exactly vibe with my tastes. And then I watched it again a couple years ago, maybe 2020, maybe 2019, my senior year. And it was like my eyes were opening. It was a fresh cinematic experience. It's a absolute masterpiece. I feel confident in saying that now. I feel like I've absorbed so much about the movie that just wasn't there the first time I watched it. It could have been setting, it could have been the headspace, but I adore the first movie. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I didn't get around to seeing The Exorcist 3 until last year, actually. It was on Shudder temporarily, and I'd never seen any of The Exorcist sequels. So I was like, let me tap in. I've never done it. I was getting into a mood where I wanted to see a lot of franchise horror movies. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I watched The Exorcist 3 for the first time and was kind of shocked, was very shocked by just what the movie is, the structure that it takes, and how much I really enjoyed it. I came away from it kind of... Not nearly as much as the first, but having a lot of respect for it in my heart. And it's a a personal favorite in the the wide world of sequels to acclaimed horror movies.
0: Yes, especially when we should note that we haven't said anything about a movie that pops up in between these two movies you're referring to. Um, (laughs) Have you seen the other sequels in that year since uh, you first watched this one?
1: I have not. I came really close to watching The Heretic for this episode specifically. It was last night. I was looking at it on HBO Max, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I started it. I got about seven or eight minutes into it, and I was like, I just can't do this right now. I don't know if I have the fortitude (laughs) to do this right now.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you didn't miss miss much. I did watch it for this episode, and it's not great.
1: (laughs) Well, well,
0: Brian, that's a good transition point.
3: So what about what is your
0: history – uh, going into this episode with The Exorcist in general, and because I know you hadn't seen this one, this was one. This is a season where you only seen one out of the s- six films that we chose to cover, and so this one was one yeah. of the ones you hadn't seen. So, what, what's your history with the franchise?
3: Yeah, um, much like you, Krishan, I, I grew up very religious, um, mainly due to my family, and I I just never watched The Exorcist for a long time because I just it, it always was like the scariest movie in the world to me. Yeah. Um. And I had heard like, s- like a lot of my family had like, uh, I like, I remember having a conversation with my family one time where like my aunt, like almost like fainted in the theater or something like that. I don't know how much <laughs> credibility there is to that. But like, it, I was, so in my head I'm thinking like, God, this movie must be like something else, like from a different world. And yeah, m- much like you, Krishan, I watched it when I was maybe in high school and i was like this is good i see what it's doing i acknowledge that it is a very important horror movie but I, I didn't love it it didn't kind of like you know it didn't it didn't really sink into me as much as i was hoping but then i rewatched it like last week um and i yeah much like you it was like this is a masterpiece this is like unbelievable that this exists and is as like 50 years later is still so terrifying and unsettling and just yeah i i love that movie it's incredible and i i watched uh the heretic before watching 3 which yeah. i i don't love <laughs> <laughs> but watching exorcist 3 i will say is it is such a bizarre movie and it's such a weird sequel and it's such an interesting kind of installment into this this it's weird. This I say franchise, but this this The Exorcist doesn't even like resemble a franchise in a lot of ways because it feels so disparate, which we'll talk about. But um, are you yeah, saying Exorcist they didn't plot 3. this out very
0: evenly, Brian? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think, especially by the fourth film, they totally knew what they were doing <laughs> and didn't have to have massive reshoots at all.
3: <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, but I was really kind of perplexed and. Fascinated by *Exorcist* three, and I I love it. I think it's a fantastic movie, and it's so weird. But uh, yeah, but uh, Thomas, I'm curious about you with your kind of history with this franchise.
0: Yeah, so um I definitely have a similar backstory in terms of seeing *The Exorcist* in high school. Very distinctly remember doing that on a Halloween. Um, with some friends and I was like wow this is okay this is a really solid movie I don't know if I think it's the scariest thing of all time and I still kind of feel that way that's my thing is like, I think that movie's great mm. I think it's incredibly well made it's one of the best acted horror movies of all time um, I wouldn't consider it necessarily as scary which I think is like mm-hmm. a thing I hate in horror discourse so much about <laughs> if a movie is scary I don't expect any horror movie to be scary when I'm a jaded ass horror fan who watches so much shit like of Precisely. course you're not gonna be scared by everything, you fucking idiot. We want a gold star, but it's so scary. I know that's like a special effect. Good, dude. Great gold star, cookie. Fuck off. Like that's like I hate that kind of thing, especially like I think that affected The Exorcist because I remember when I was a kid, I distinctly remember the point when they released the version you've never seen of which was in 2000. Mm-hmm. They theatrically released a version that had a couple new things in there. Uh, like the spider walk, which is famously like not a thing I like that much. I think that does not hold up very well. I'm glad they kind of removed it <laughs> originally. Um, but there's some connective tissue to this movie that's in that version. We'll put a pin in that. But um, yeah, so I was aware at least of this movie just based on that reputation of like a bit of a combination, honestly, of the scariest thing you've ever seen. And younger people who like were older than I mean, me, like teenagers, who had seen The Exorcist version you've never seen and we're like, I don't know, it's not that scary. I don't know what everybody's talking about. I I grew up with a lot of like that sort of binary perception and then watching the movie, I still feel like I think it's a great movie. I think there are truly chilling things about it, mainly just the factor of like the whole Chris McNeil character and her journey and Ellen Merson's performance. I think it's genuinely quite amazing. Um, I'll just stick this in right here. Uh, Shout out to Krishan who was also with us talking about Exorcist Believer on the Patreon. We literally just recorded that. So, you'll be able to have heard all of these things from him about that. But the thing is, with this franchise, yeah, because I I, then I did watch The Heretic not too long after that. And even though I had that reputation with it of, like, it's one of the worst movies ever made. And (laughs) I think it still is, like, one of the most public spectacles of a bad movie based on sort of when that was being made. It also had production problems, and it was John Borman just going wild. And that movie is not good, but I think you can agree with me, Brian. That movie's insane. That movie just that, is it's a fucking weird, weird shit <laughs> at every turn. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's poorly put together. But it's never boring, unlike maybe other Exorcist movies. Listen to the Patreon. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. You would agree with that, right? That movie's not unengaging on just a bad shit no, level.
3: <laughs> it, it is such an insane... It makes sense as a sequel. When you're first watching it, you're like, oh, okay, let's follow Linda Blair's character. Of course, right. Reagan. Let's, you know, yeah. And then it is just, it is, I was going to ask you this, like, it is incoherent. It is just, yeah. I could not tell you the plot of that movie. And really what happened, it's so weird. I will best,
0: I'll, let me try and best summarize it right now. I'm going to do, I'm going to take this challenge. So, right, so it's a couple years after The Exorcist. Uh, Reagan is now like 17 or so. Um, and she hasn't had a demon episode in that time. But there's some indication that it might still be within her. Uh, so she is not with her mother, not because somebody didn't want to come back for a very small amount of money, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> she so she doesn't have her mother around and said she's with Louise Fletcher, uh, fresh off of Cuckoo's Nest, like not too long after Cuckoo's Nest, which yeah. is very interesting. Uh, who's running a facility that is trying to like help sort of these various kids who have some sort of disorders, like one kid is implied to be autistic or very directly said as much to be autistic in a very odd scene that I don't think is very sensitive um, and then uh-huh. yes and so that's the whole thing and then the priest Richard Burton comes in very drunk uh, that's not that's not <laughs> slander it was very well known this man was drunk so much on the scene and Burton comes in like stoic face and just like I need to see the girl because I've been getting these flashes about um, right he gets the flashes about Marin who Max von Cedar returns in new Dick Smith makeup? They got Dick yes. Smith back,
1: which is wild.
0: <laughs> um, but and then it just goes into like, you know, trying to use like a sort of inception machine to get inside Reagan's head, and then the yeah, Louise Fletcher like gets ESP. in there, and then Richard, yeah. right, and Richard Burton gets in there. It almost becomes Inception, literally. Uh, yeah. It's the demon Pazuzu who is talked about a lot. They, that that is the name of the actual sort of figure that you see the, the statue of in the first movie. They luckily didn't say that fucking name because they say it all the time in two. Where literally the Pazuzu possesses like one of the um, sort of various different African villagers because that's also a thing in this movie. And it's just like I am Pazuzu, literally is what that's how she says it. Yep, <laughs> it's amazing. And James Earl Jones is there. And James he's Earl Jones up, like, is there. A locust. And he does a panther sound, and then he's a yeah. doctor? It's it really it's weird. Good. And also they go back to the house at the end
1: <laughs> in Georgetown. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Just, what a wild movie. It's the same year as uh, James Earl Jones being in Star Wars. That's uh, true. As, yes. as Darth Vader. But yeah, it's got a Morricone score, which is a weird score from my memory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bizarre movie
1: I did a cursory glance over the Wikipedia because I was like I'm not gonna watch it but let me let me let me make sure I'm a little in tune I saw there was telepathy yep, involved yep. what is yep. going on
0: that move I think that movie is worth watching uh not with the caveat of just like if you're fascinated by like how off the rails a major studio production made by an actual filmmaker like who John Borman who's made great movies and it just like falls apart it seems it's fascinating but that's not the case kind of, uh, with Exorcist 3, which you might as well just... uh, Let's let's play the trailer now here for Exorcist
2: Seventeen years ago, an extraordinary motion picture touched our most profound, nameless fears. Do you dare walk these steps again? Thou kill me. Satan grows stronger. You believe in possession, Father? He has found a haven. Come to take a little blood from you, Father. He has taken possession. Boy, I've been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside, a man. Who are you? We thought had died seventeen years ago. He is inside with us. He will never get away. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's *The Exorcist* three. So uh, *Exorcist*
0: three, aka *Exorcist* three Legion if you have uh, the director's cut version, which we'll talk about here. Um, But uh, this came out August 17th, 1990, and is directed and written by a very fascinating person to do this, uh, William Peter Blatty. Had worked as a screenwriter previously. Uh, He wrote the second Pink Panther movie and a lot of Blake Edwards comedies (laughs) in the 60s. Uh, And then he wrote The Exorcist as a book and then adapted the screenplay Is the person who won The sole Oscar this movie won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Then he directed a movie called The Ninth Configuration, which I've seen. And do either of you know about this movie? Because this movie's fucking wild.
1: I have heard this movie's name several times and I know of it, but I've never seen it and don't know much about what it's about.
3: I only found out about it because of uh, finding out what what else he directed.
0: Yes, which is the other movie besides Exorcist 3. And just what this is, is basically... This is an even harder movie to like synopsize, I think, than The Heretic. Because basically, it feels like a Kurt Vonnegut novel in terms of just like the way that the characters speak and are structured. And the big thing that does connect this to Exorcist, Scott Wilson, who pops up in this movie, as sort of the main uh, guy at the hospital. You might recognize him from The Walking Dead, amongst other things. Uh, He plays Billy Cutshaw... A name you might remember, if you remember the original Exorcist, the scene where the big party's going on and Reagan comes out and pees and she says, you're going to die up there. That's to the astronaut, Billy Cutshaw. <laughs> so this movie's about that astronaut guy who was in Exorcist. The opening's literally him being in his, like, space shuttle and aborting the mission because he's thinking vaguely about, like, Reagan, <laughs> what she said, what? Yes. So then he goes to. <laughs> okay, wait. I ha- I just started. Uh, I I could talk about this movie forever. But basically, after this point, he ends up going into like this weird, like army-instated, uh, like sort of sanitarium for Vietnam vets, which is like a castle that was transported okay. over brick by brick to the Pacific Northwest. It's just in the middle of the fog in, I guess, Washington or Oregon. I don't know. Um, And all the people that are there are like former vets who have been, have some sort of like weird psychological disorder. Jason Miller is one of them. Uh, The guy who plays Father Dyer, Ed Flanders, is also in this. Uh, And then uh, Joe Spinell, one of my favorite sort of guys. Uh, This is a very early debut for Tom Atkins. Uh, oh hell well. yeah! It's, I think it's his debut, honestly. Uh, Richard Lynch, who's also a great character actor, just a lot of weird people, and it's basically just like that astronaut character fighting against uh, this guy named Vincent Kane, Colonel Kane, played by Stacy Keach, uh, who is like the no holds barred like military guy who's been put in charge of the sanitarium, and then that movie goes into wild different directions from there. Even though I know it sounded very normal, based on what I was saying, right? That feels like a very <laughs> typical studio you know a dime a dozen these movies in Redbox. box um but yeah so that's a movie that's technically a part of this universe
1: weird it's going on the list that sounds absolutely bewildering yes. i must see this <laughs> yes
0: um but yeah so that's the only other movie he actually directed because then he does exorcist three and he writes a couple novels and then he dies in 2017 shortly after the director's cut comes out an interesting weird career
3: Uh, a very weird career yes glad
1: he got to see the director's cut at least
0: glad he got to help construct i believe his last interview ever is on the disc that you borrowed brian by the way oh (laughs) Um, yes (laughs) you you can hear like his basically commentary interview that's like one of the last things he ever did and it's yeah it's such a weird thing like uh, brian were you aware of all this it's directed by the guy who wrote the novel and how, how would that fit your expectations going into this
3: I, I yeah I had known I think I had known that the guy who wrote the book had come back for some for a sequel but I I never knew that this was that he had directed it and like constructed it and it's such a weird thing because it isn't like obviously Friedkin is is not here and like it, it's a very interesting thing of like the original author kind of taking back their I hate calling it IP, but like their kind of creation and making something else out of it that like, this doesn't feel like as like angry towards like the first Exorcist. This isn't like that situation, which is like, makes it more interesting where it's just, he made a sequel and it's very weird and very, I think it's very idiosyncratic. It feels very like, uh, it, it feels very much in line with the, the the original exorcist which i think is what i love so much about this movie like the tone of it is so much similar that i think it makes sense that he you know worked on both i think
0: yeah uh while doing a very different movie which is the great thing yes about this. it is yeah. like not only just a weird movie but a super different movie on like every level um but what about you christian were you aware of any of that before you saw it last year
1: Yes, I was aware that uh, William Peter Blatty directed this movie and also wrote it. I also knew about the novelization. I vaguely understood that he wrote the novel first and then directed it into a movie, but I didn't really know the the behind-the-scenes stuff that resulted in it being a novel first. And I feel like I was kind of – because of that, I was kind of expecting very similarly for it to fall – somewhere in the tone and be more of a direct narrative sequel which it kind of sort of is but not in the way that you expect which is the fun part of this movie absolutely
0: yeah i'd say so for sure i think a big sort of reasoning for that just to to, to get into this movie a bit more uh we need to talk about of course our carryover characters uh we got three characters here who carry over into this uh we'll start off with him because God damn, do I want to talk about him. Uh, as Lieutenant William F. Kinderman, who was in the original movie, played by Lee J. Cobb, a great character actor, but he had died in 1976, so they recast him with George C. Scott, who I told Brian this, and I'm, I, I think I really stand by that. George C. Scott is my favorite actor. Period. Uh, I've, I haven't seen all of his movies. There's, there's still so many of them I have to see, but any time I've seen him, even in his worst So, like, movies that I do not like overall, he's at least, like, this great bright spot. Because I think he's just, like, such a fascinating presence that has, like, a character actor energy, but with all the true gravitas of, like, a genuinely great actor, who also, based on any of his behind-the-scenes stuff, like, him basically doing the whole thing, where, like, he didn't go to the Oscars when Patton got nominated, he won, and he was just at home watching hockey. Because he hated that shit. (laughs) Hell yeah. He loved hockey apparently. Good <laughs> man. It's just like that's the coolest motherfucker. <laughs> it's it's on it's on par for me with like Shannon at the bar when like I think Shape of Water won, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> so good.
0: Um but but yeah, um so I'm curious how you both feel, especially in comparison to sort of a lee J. Cobb. Brian, how do you feel about Scott's take on the character?
3: I think he's is the reason this movie works so well and works as well as it does. Because like, I I love Lee J. Cobb in the original. Um, I, I just, I, I've been, since I watched the exorcist, I've been repeating to myself the line where he's just like, I love to, to critique, to discuss film. Yes. You want to see a movie with me? (laughs) (laughs) I I love him. He's great. And uh, yeah, it's very, it's interesting bringing in George C. Scott because he is, he's very well known and bringing him in as this character who like, I don't know Lee J Cobb. I'm not very familiar with him, but I know him in that movie and I know that character. And so bringing in a very famous actor like George C. Scott to play this, I or at least a very recognizable actor. I just think he works so well in this. And like, you're right. He, he brings like this a gravitas to this movie that I think you really need and I think if you had someone in the lead role who couldn't balance the balance that, I think it could really fall apart. But I, I think he he's genuinely great in this movie, which like, you know, I, I often feel like in horror sequels, you know, performances aren't necessarily the best. And, you know, it is kind of a lot of the franchises become more cash cows than like, Let's make something interesting, and let's bring in interesting actors. And I, yeah, I I love George C. Scott in this movie. He's just so he's great, but he's also really like funny and weird. Like the whole like Mm -hmm. the 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 thing with the fish with the carp, (laughs) so funny. Beautiful, just such (laughs) an amazing bit of delivery. Just
0: and also the way that the movie's made really services that bit where just the direction for Blatty of just slowly getting the camera tighter on the two of their faces. And I love also how um, Ed Flanders is just laughing. He breaks. Yeah. Which is amazing. (laughs) I love that he breaks. Of course you would break if that would happen. But by the way, while we're talking about sort of Lee J. Cobb, I should mention, you do know him from one movie, um, 12 Angry Men, the original, where he played your number three, the really hot-tempered one who's estranged from his son. Trivia. Very interesting bit of trivia. That character Mm -hmm. was played by George C. Scott, in a TV movie version that was released in 1997, directed by William Friedkin.
3: (sighs) Oh, wow. Yeah, full circle. That's that's so weird. Wild. Yeah, that's kind of insane.
0: (laughs) for sure. But what about you, Christian? How do you feel about
1: Scott in this? I agree with both of you guys. I I adore him in this movie. I think he's phenomenal. I think he, like, agreed with you, Brian. I think he kind of, like, props up the whole thing. If we didn't have someone as... With such a dynamic presence, I feel like it would just kind of like crumple a little bit under the weight of everything that this movie's doing. I think, uh, I don't know, I think one of my favorite parts about it, because when I saw it for the first time, it had been so long since I'd seen the original Exorcist that I honestly forgot George C. Scott did not play Kinderman in the first movie. <laughs> so re-watching the first movie and then watching this one and like actually being aware of Lee J. Cobb's presence in the first movie, I think what's so fascinating is I think George C. Scott embodies Kinderman in a very forward moving way to which I could very much see his version of the character and the way he plays him and the way he carries Kinderman being an extension of the version of Kinderman that we meet in the first film and how that time and what he sees at the end of the first movie would change him into the more world weary and like repressed kind of version of him that we see George C. Scott bring to life. I love his performance. I think it's very, very in tune and kind of continuous with Lee J. Cobb's performance in a very beautiful way. I think he's great. Well, and even just the factor
0: of, like, the three sort of characters that we have here are... It works the fact that, like, this is such a weird horror sequel. It's like, let's aim this around, like, people who are in that weird twilight between middle age and, like, golden years. Because these guys are old. Like, George C. Scott dies ten years after this. And... Even, like, Ed Flanders, who we should mention is playing uh, Father Dyer, while William O'Malley, who I believe was an actual priest, played the character in the first Exorcist, which I do love. There's one of the things from the version you haven't seen before that's really great is when they have actually the little ending bit where it's Lee J. Cobb uh, and uh, William O'Malley, like, right outside the Exorcist house. And he's like, oh, I missed Linda Blair and her mom. Oh, well. Uh, Hey, you want to go see a movie? And then (laughs) they go on the movie. And it's kind of, a, it's a great little connector thing, even though also, like, if you look at William O'Malley and Ed Flanders, couldn't look more different as people, yeah. even more so than George <laughs> Scott and Lee J. Cobb. Because yeah, I agree with you that, like, I think that age kind of helps with that transition, that change of casting. Um, mm-hmm. I think that also would have worked with another person in this cast who we should just at least, I guess, introduce this as well. Mm. Uh, but let's, let's talk a bit more, I guess, about Father Dyer. Real quick, let's talk about Father Dyer. How do you guys feel about uh, Ed Flanders' portrayal? We'll start with Krishan this time.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think Ed Flanders in the movie is is really good, and I think he plays. I think it's interesting the way that the movie is structured. It gets far. It gets far more dire and more serious. <laughs> <laughs> it gets a little bit more serious towards the end of the film's runtime. But I think it's really interesting that in that first half. Uh, the way their dynamic works is that we see Ed Flanders and his father Dyer as almost the straight man to George C. Scott's like a little more eccentric, a little bit more like flabbergasted. I think that dynamic's funny. And I think, uh, I think Ed Flanders plays kind of the turmoil of father Dyer's character in a way that never feels self-serious, but at the same time, we can always tell that there's a little bit more going on behind his eyes than Necessarily, what's present in the scene. I specifically think a lot about that hospital scene, the 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 scene between uh, Kinderman and him, the final scene that yeah. they share. I think it's uh, very light and very, if you don't know what's coming next, it kind of lulls you into where the movie's going, and you can see he's playing with Kinderman in a very like jovial way, the way that that dynamic is. But you can tell there's a little unease that undersettles him in being in a new area, him being in this hospital him being concerned with his mortality in a way that the whole film is kind of about, but I really like the fact that with Fire, father Dyer, we see a lot of that behind his performance in a way I find really interesting.
3: It's so interesting in like the, like you guys are talking about the sort of like the age thing and how it adds to these, these characters and how like they all have this kind of like weariness and this kind of like jadedness and like, I love their dynamic like him and uh Dyer and uh, uh what is uh what is uh George C. Scott's character uh Kinderman, Kinderman. um I, I just love their dynamic where like uh, towards the beginning of the movie like Dyer's having a conversation and he's like oh I gotta go cheer up this guy he gets depressed every year and then like George C. Scott uh yes. Kinderman has the same conversation where he's like I gotta go cheer up my friend I love just the idea that like they're both. They both think that they have to cheer the other one up. Like I think it's such a beautiful, like, little friendship that they have, and like, them going to the movies is is so funny as well. Like, you know, the way he's like goes to the concessions, like, "What are you doing? Like, we're gonna miss the movie. Come on!" And it's, it, it does. It's, it's, it kind of like their their banter yeah, is
0: amazing. It's really the heart of like, it's incredible the part of the movie. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. so well written and specific from Blatty. Which is like the whole thing where he's like lemon drops, you know. When I was um, I was at a consecration <laughs> once, where it was just all first graders that make you a lemon drop junkie.
3: <laughs> he just that's he calls, what he's yeah, eating. he ca- he calls them weirdos. Like he calls the right. kids weirdos. Yes,
0: <laughs> right. There's there's a sense that like these two have been friends for so long, despite the fact these two characters haven't met each other as these two actors before. But you just immediately feel it, it feels like standalone in an interesting way, where like you don't really mm-hmm. need to have seen the first exercise, I would argue, to like get this movie even though it's right. in line very much with it but yeah i i think the the big thing that kind of back and forth is very much more present i should mention in the director's cut there's a lot more mm-hmm. stuff where especially the stuff that Krishan was kind of talking about about um you know the mortality angle of it where there's a point where they after he has found out about the thomas murder that uh, is at the very beginning of this movie and he kind of like skirts around what actually happened because uh, he finds out about like the drug and everything. And he's just talking to Father Dyer, like, oh, guess what? Uh, you know, the, the kid didn't suffer. I know that much. There's a point where he says that. And it, it it's just it's mm. show like that they're really protective of each other. While at the same time, they do bullshit like he gives them the penguin and it's just like, oh, a gift? It's like, yeah, I found it in the street and I thought it suited you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny.
3: <laughs> if, like, I. It, if if I was in the hospital and a friend came in with a with that penguin and said I thought of you and gave that to me, it would be the nicest thing ever. It's such a like nice moment between them. But just the detail of like I picked it off off the street, yeah, just is, like
0: so <laughs> such a perfect detail for like these two guys love fucking with each other. They're buds, which makes eventually when Ed Flanders uh, dies and something you know we should mention, this is a horror movie where you don't see anything. <laughs> you don't yeah. see. Any of the horrifically implied deaths that go on. This is very much, like... Mm -hmm. It's described... I can see why it would work so well as a book. This is like a Mm page-turner kind of thing. If you're, like... If it's described so well. And visually, especially for Blatty, like... All these shots are very, like... Not fancy at all. Cameras, like... Very much... Like, in any different shot. It's just, like... Very still. No huge camera moves. But it makes shit, like... The reveal of it's a wonderful life after this great buildup mm-hmm. of like oh we found all these uh little containers that have all of his blood in it and none of it dropped except for what they put on this thing <laughs> that's so <laughs> fucked up it feels like it's a weird sort of precursor to like seven almost that feels like a seven thing yeah. but without the, mm. the, the absolutely the, uh you know the fincher gloss
1: necessarily <laughs> <laughs> no frills i think something that like just what we're talking about about uh george c scott's character and the way that the movie is so deliberate about not showing you anything i think something that contributes to that feeling of dread and that almost like page turner quality that you're talking about is the way we see tenderman react to each one of the murders yeah. and the mm-hmm. way that we linger in the aftermath and he kind of takes it in a lot of that dread really comes from the way that he plays in his performance, which is insane.
0: That bit, particularly when they're in that one room and there's the one guy who I forgot. He's a character actor I recognize, but the guy who's like the big head of the hospital is just like, Fingerprints?
2: You're talking about fingerprints? What's <laughs> going on
0: here? And the way Dorsey Scott is like trying to be very delicate while explaining the Gemini thing. And he has to like irk this out until finally he's just like, oh, shut up! Yeah, he goes all veiny. And he cries. For a bit, yeah. almost like he almost loses his composure completely, because you can see at the same time this guy's like an incredible professional who's been doing this forever. You know, a couple of years till retirement. Guy, literally, they don't say <laughs> it, but they might as well. Like, <laughs> pretty um, yeah. and it 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 just evokes like so
3: much of this terror,
0: especially for like this particular person. It's so wild. It's so wonderful.
3: And like, because uh, you, you could because you mentioned like that the the scene with like the It's a Wonderful Life, like. The way that Blatty like directs this, like you were you were talking about the the camera, uh, the where the camera is and how it doesn't move, all the the whole thing feels very understated. Yeah, which you wouldn't expect from like an, a sequel to like this horror franchise. I feel like they always go bigger and you know more bombastic and what what have you. But like it, it's so understated, and like I think this is one of uh, this is a really great example of just like building tension and building to like not even necessarily a scare. I mean we'll we'll talk about that hallway scene, but yeah. um <laughs> but like just building up like the moment, the reveal of like when Father Dyer dies and we, we go into the room and it's the, the POV shot and like you know, the reveal of the the cups of blood and the reveal and it's like and there's something worse and worse. And it it's just the unraveling of you know, all of this stuff, is so understated and is so... It adds to that sense of, like, dread that the entire movie has, like, all the way through, I think.
0: Well, I mean, we should talk about a big reason why that's the case. Because along with, like, I mentioned the George C. Scott performance and how much I love that. At the same time, another performance that is so crucial to this movie, despite what the studio attempted to do, and did shorten, but... um. Brad Dourif is so fucking good in this movie. It is such an amazing, underrated horror-supporting performance. Incredible, yeah. In particular. Because, in this case, to explain, like we mentioned this Gemini killer, who was like, 15 years earlier, had been killing people in a very sort of Zodiac comparison, speak Mac to But then, at a certain point, George Scott just realizes like all the M.O.s fit. Well, we didn't tell people, (laughs) as the cops but we tried to hide from people so we could catch this guy. And it turns out he's been possessing the body of Father Karras, who, depending on which version you watch, is either in the theatrical Jason Miller and then flashes of Brad Dorif, or in the director's cut, just Brad Dorif, who was just playing Karras, which is the big sort of difference. I'm curious, I probably should
3: have asked this earlier, did both of you get to see the director's cut? of this movie? I did, but because of you, because you loaned me the your Blu-ray copy of it. right? So I, I did get to watch it that way. But Krishan, I'm, I'm curious if you were able to watch it.
1: Yeah, I was not uh, able to watch the director's cut. I did see a lot of the significant scenes and the differences in the director's cut. So I feel a little equipped to talk about the ways that it differs. Yeah. But uh yeah, I tried to watch it on Amazon. Everything was listed as if it were the director's cut, but then I got about like 30 minutes in and I was like, this is definitely not the director's cut.
3: Weird. Yeah.
0: That's another thing. It's just the, an underrated thing people don't talk about in the streaming wars era is the lack of consistency of what cut is on here and what isn't. And what's a separate Mm -hmm. thing. And what is it? Mm -hmm. And especially when it's like either this case where it's like, you know, this director's cut isn't really available for anyone to see, then it's got interesting stuff that's lost versus like the Warriors director's cut being the only one available, which sucks. The director's cut is such a bad fucking movie with those comic book transitions that are done digitally.
1: Rough, bad stuff. It's interesting we're even talking about this because uh, you were just talking about the original Exorcist and the the version you've never seen before. Which is the only version I've ever seen. Hmm. And I went to rewatch the original uh, on HBO Max recently and found out that it was indeed the theatrical because awaiting the entire movie. And I was like, I know The Spider Walk was before this and I have not seen it. And then the movie ended. it. And I was like, that's definitely not the version of that movie I've seen before.
0: So if, if that was the version you have seen before, this was the <laughs> one.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was thrown for a loop with that one, but indeed it was the version that I have have not have seen before. <laughs> That's
0: your edition, the Blu rays coming out soon, Warner Brothers, because they love physical media. Um, but anyway. Um so so yeah, Brad Dorf, Brian. Talk about him. How do you feel about him, especially
3: in sort of the different versions of the film? Yeah, it it's very yeah, it's very interesting the way that the like the theatrical version sort of cuts back and forth between them and i in a way i do kind of like that I, I will say because i think it kind of like adds to sort of george c scott's characters like he, he feels like he's going like crazy a bit and like i, I don't know i I, I like it in theory but i i also love the seeing in the director's cut like just him going off for like a, like minutes and these like like these manic monologues that are just like angry and like you know as this this demon and it's it's such a really great performance i mean like and and he does most like all of it just sitting in a room and he's like you know chained to a to a table it's it's really great and i i I, yeah it's a very underrated performance because i i had never really known that he was in this and (laughs) he's Mm -hmm. he's great yeah i love him
0: yeah, also interesting in terms of the uh, Cuckoo's Nest connection I mentioned earlier. Oh, right. Um, but, yeah, even in... Because, like, my whole thing with uh, Dorif and, like, the Jason Miller of it all is, like, on one hand, it feels kind of weirdly inconsistent that Jason Miller's, like, the only person who comes back. Right? Right. Like, if it was just Brad Dorif. It would fit totally fine. And it's, like, cool. Completely different cast. Um, and the reasoning, by the way, we should mention this, the fasting sort of behind-the-scenes thing is... Um, Blatty originally wanted Jason Miller back. He'd been in the ninth configuration and, and all that as well. So he's just like, yeah, I want to work with him again. But uh, he, according to Brad Dorif on also an interview that is on that disc that you have, Brian, um, he d- specifically describes it as Jason Miller couldn't remember lines because his alcoholism was so bad that he had wet brain, allegedly, is apparently the thing. Oh. and it Oh, wow. And apparently he was at least an alcoholic. I was aware of that much. And the weird connection of um, his kid is Joshua Jason Miller, who was in Near Dark and also wrote a couple interesting horror movies. He's the kid from All Near right. Dark, which is weird. Yeah, um, weird. But anyway, uh, so yeah. So apparently that's why he wasn't in the original version of uh, the director's cut and it was Brad Dorf instead. And then the studio was like, we need Jason Miller in this. We're going to get him in. And you have to like... Have him do it. So, originally, Brad Dourif thought he was just cut out of the movie. Then, of course, they tried to make him understand and remember the lines, and he couldn't do it. So, they did bring him in. Everything that's in the theatrical cut is not in that director's cut. Because, did you notice also, Brian, the different sets for, like, his cell? Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. And and the thing with the director's cut as well, which is, like, is that they are using the dailies, but Mm -hmm. they're, like... They're, like, VHS quality.
0: Yeah, the negatives are apparently lost to time, so this is all they have left of this footage.
3: Yeah, like, it's in 4x3, whereas the whole movie's in, like, 185, I think. And, like, it is very jarring going back and forth, because, like, uh, thank you, Thomas, but the Blu-ray looks incredible. I mean, the movie just, like, as a whole, the movie looks incredible. But, like, yeah, the the different sets are very interesting, and I, I, it's... It's a weird thing where you you have to sort of like squint through all of the like layers of like you know grain and like damage and like to see the movie. But I thought they looked incredible, and I, and like from what I could gleam, like all the shots and everything, they look very gorgeous. And I, I would have loved to see what they look like, you know, with the original negative. But you know that's unfortunate. But um. But yeah, because th- with the cell in particular. It looks, yeah. like, very Fincher-esque, actually,
0: speaking of Fincher. It really does. Yeah. It, it, it's much danker, big, right? and it's not mm-hmm. as big. It's very small, and it looks like a fucking cobblestone prison from, like, <laughs> he's about to be hung before King Arthur can save him. <laughs> and Versus <laughs> in the in the uh, theatrical cut, it's this, like, big, wide sort of place that I love. Apparently, when George C. Scott came in for the reshoots, he was just talking to Brad Dorf at one point saying, like, you know if Madonna doesn't come out here and start doing a music video i don't think they're going to like it <laughs> which i think is fair it looks like it's like like a prayers about to start up <laughs> it does. It does. but uh how do you feel about like even a difference like that in terms of the production design maybe overall how do you feel about like the look of this movie uh krishan
1: i agree it's a absolutely breathtaking movie some of just like Some of the formalist elements they're playing with a lot of the lighting in certain scenes is just like gorgeous and kind of like speaks to the dynamics that are going on subtextually, but like literally in the text, uh, specifically anything in the cell, but like speaking about the cell in particular, I agree that it has a very Fincher-esque element. And it's this, it's this interesting thing where like, On one hand, I feel like the aesthetic of where the Gemini Killer is and that cell and the theatrical, it kind of is in line with the idea that he's been there dormant for 15 years and he hasn't really touched anything. So there's like an uncanny pristineness to it it, that kind of speaks to that. But then on the other hand, I love just like the dank and grimy and very like, just kind of like, dirtiness of the way that the cell looks in the director's cut and I feel like it falls more in line with like Brad Dourif's performance being so explosive and vitriolic and very very nasty in a way like both his performance and the general aesthetic of where we find him complements each other so like I see the merits of both in a really interesting way the whole thing is a, a very interesting study on director's cut versus kind of like the way that studios force you to compromise in a way it's it's very interesting seeing both of them back to back and seeing the pros and cons of both
0: yeah because i mean obviously with like the what brian was talking earlier with like the the degrading quality it's hard to appreciate some of these things but at the same time there still is like even just a different take because that's the big thing honestly i think that's different about dorif who has said like in that little interview he said i really don't like the stuff in the theatrical cut I prefer what was on the, what I did originally, because he was asked to do it, like, they literally said, like, hey, can you come and shoot tomorrow? And he's like, I need two days to just be with a PA, uh, which he didn't use that term, but I didn't want to repeat what he said. Watch the interview, it's weird. But I think he's amazing, even in the theatrical cut, because the theatrical cut does a really great job where, like, Miller, admittingly, because of maybe, you know, where he was at that point, In his life, he feels definitely like somebody who's not even awake. He feels like a husk of a person in a way that's, like, very tragic, in a way that I do feel invested in. I don't think he's even bad when he does do stuff in the movie. I I think he definitely is, like, giving it his all, and I think especially the ending bit that's in the the theatrical ending, I think is a bit stronger, because I think that's... We'll just address this now. I think the biggest problem with this movie in either version is the ending. Um, Mm It's the Mm -hmm. one thing, because in the theatrical cut, they change it to the degree that, as I mentioned, uh, the Madonna comparison George C. Scott had was kind of valid for, like, there's a lot more effects in that whole sequence. There's a lot more of, like, this Father Morning character who we haven't mentioned. We referenced this an hour ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Father Morning is this guy who is in one scene earlier in these reshoots played by Nicole Williamson, who's an interesting character actor, um, but he just is like tending to a bird. And then he looks over at like some wall art he has. And he's like, oh yes, it says a familiar phrase. And then an hour and 30 minutes later, (laughs) he shows up to do an exorcism on Jason Miller, um, who I I like some of the sort of weird attempts because it feels kind of like Blatty in that sequence after he had been like, you know, trying to do his stage version. He's just like, fine, you know what? You want to do this kind of shit? Fine. I'll just go hard. And I think he does in a weird way where it's like, he's almost giving a middle finger for like, this is so ridiculously out of like the tone this movie was before. (laughs) It's almost like a joke kind of in a weird way, in a very demented way, especially with some of the stuff. I mentioned Thomas earlier who pops up here and there. Uh, That imagery is interesting. It definitely feels like this movie's dealing with a lot of like upsetting things like that. In a way where it almost feels like it's just in plain sight of the world that that, that kind of like dreariness about the job Georgie e. Scott has, and especially like even though you don't see anything, just the implications of what we heard before I think is better than necessarily seeing it. Um, but I do like the image immediately after that where Miller's on the cross, um, and I think that really works. But yeah, how do you guys feel about sort of that versus the ending in which uh, he just comes in and shoots him? <laughs> that's that's it <laughs> in the director's. <laughs>
1: That is exactly what yeah, that is it. like it's this weird situation where i understand what bloody was going for in the mundanity of it and the matter of factness of the way that like he kind of like capstones the entire Gemini killer thing in the director's cut i think there's like a certain quietness to it that i can understand but it's you're absolutely right neither ending white works they're both like either lacking something or in the theatrical cut is way too much of something and i agree i think a lot of the imagery in the theatrical cut of the final exorcism is some really striking imagery and the way that they portray both like of the metaphysical sides of what's going Mm -hmm. on is some stuff that i've never seen in an exorcism movie i've never seen that abstract represented in that way so it is very cool to see some of like some of the stuff that he's playing around with and the way that the set transforms around the characters in that in that scene but yeah it's just a lot it's a lot that doesn't quite fit perfectly with what we get before father morning comes out of absolutely
0: no so <laughs> talking about he healed that bird and then he came and did the exorcism that's all the character development i need for sean i don't know about
1: you the <laughs> first time i watched it I genuinely did not remember that character being in the movie at all, so I had to pause and be like, what is I happening? I did too.
3: I, was, I did think like, wait, who's this guy? Did I Was I supposed to... Oh, he's doing The exercise? Okay, sure. I don't know who this guy is, but sure.
1: <laughs> I guess he knows what
3: he's doing. Yeah. Clearly
1: like, he didn't entirely, but yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's... Like you said, it's the weakest spot of the movie in both versions, and they both have the, their pros and cons, but I do think overall... I probably prefer the theatrical ending specifically because of that final moment they give to, to Jason Miller. I think that's a great kind of full circle moment for that character within a bunch of other stuff going on. Why isn't there just a happy medium that probably wouldn't have cost you
0: nearly as much money to reshoot of just like Brad Dourif going wild, like close to George C. Scott, just even being in his face and then like shooting him? And then giving you, like, the Jason Miller moment where he does shoot him, but it's much more dramatic and exciting. Um, Yeah, that's
3: the weird thing. How do you feel about those two endings, Brian? I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of the, it's the thing you were talking about earlier, Krishan, of, like, it's interesting to look at, like, a theatrical cut versus a director's cut. And, like, I love both versions of this movie. I love, I think they're both great and have really interesting and slightly different kind of takes on what this is on what the story is Mm -hmm. i I do love in a way i love the bluntness of the director's cut ending of like because it's it's literally just the scene at his house with like the nurse and then it cuts to him like walking in and shooting him and it it cuts the credits and it's i I like it in kind of a blunt like you know a very sad and upsetting kind of way but i I like it And, and yet i love the. Theatrical cut because like, I mean, there's I mean Jason Miller comes out of the ground and like there's a bunch (laughs) of people around him and he's on a cross. It's such a like, it it is one of the most striking images and I think like maybe in in any horror sequel I think it's so weird and fascinating and like I I like both versions but yeah neither one is is perfect but again I mean just the the bluntness of the director's cut and then the bombast and weirdness of the theatrical. I, I, yeah, you could... I, weirdly, you couldn't really go wrong with both, I think, but I I agree that there is something lacking in both versions.
0: Yeah. Um, though, shout out, my favorite detail, honestly, in the theatrical cut is the bit where, like, it just cuts to, like, the two-shot we've seen so much of, like, Georgie Scott on one side, Brad Dorff on the, the other, and then there's, like, a little fire and then two cobras that are his... <laughs>
2: I love that. But
0: that's just like this weird, like these two fucking like Halloween store ass snakes are just (laughs) like in the middle of this thing. It's great. I think it's great. It is. Yeah. I I gotta ask in a bit more detail about like, I want to do this for Dorf and I want to do this for Scott because they both, I think, have such amazing single moments. Um, I'll start with Krishan. What is your favorite sort of performance moment from Scott? Like, especially what he like, the things he yells out, because that's my favorite thing about him in this movie, is the, when he screams like that is stellar. <laughs> what, what's your favorite sort of
1: that kind of moment for Scott in this movie? It's not even a moment where he's yelling. I think just the the abruptness of the first time he hits Brad Dourif, mm-hmm. when he's like going yes. off on his monologue and he's talking to him. I think that is the first time. We've seen him yell and we've seen him get close, but I feel like that's the first time he really breaks his composure. And it's such an understated moment as compared to like a lot of other films. That archetype of detective, we see them finally explode, and it's this huge like fists flying and like emotions are high situation. And in comparison, that moment feels so quiet and so like I've been waiting for this, and it's really the first time we see him like step over that line in the physical way, and it's really the only time up until the ending. And I think it's really interesting how we get that before we get, especially in the director's cut, without the exorcism. I think it's interesting how we get that hit so much earlier, and it kind of sets the seeds in that the way the director's cut ends is a possibility. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty great bit. But what about you, Brian? What's your favorite sort of moment of Scott screaming?
3: Oh, man. I love it's the it's like the first time he goes to the hospital to see Dyer, and like yeah. i think the nurse the nurse walks in i i oh <laughs> just like yell is, is everything okay we're fine <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, he takes it like up to like 11 very quickly and like i, I just love when he goes that high because like it, it's very like throaty and like the audio like like you can you can hear like the levels like hitting max, and when he yells like that, it's so it's so great. Um, I, I will say like one of my favorite Scott like scenes, maybe I I really love. I, I mean, I mentioned earlier the scene with where he goes to the movies with a uh, with, with Dyer. Right. I love I love I love that and the carp and everything, but we haven't really mentioned the. Um, the dream sort of scene. Oh, good he, Lord!
0: How could we not mention this? <laughs> the most... Brian, Brian, I want you to walk people through what happens oh in this my scene. Oh, God. We're so gonna like, walk through this.
3: So, like, he sees the doors opening on this, like, massive door, and, like, right. it's a great shot of, like, all the windows, like, opening up, like, you you start seeing them. And it is basically a, like, a waiting room slash, like train station kind of thing um where there are a bunch of angels uh fabio angel is there yes (laughs) very weird (laughs) yeah um and he has a very a line that like out of context i i think is kind of funny where he's he sees the the boy who was killed earlier and he says like hi i'm sorry you got murdered thomas i miss you which is a beautiful line. And then Thomas says, I missed you too. It's a little Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's like a weird <laughs> sweet moment between those two, yeah. But you,
0: okay, you skipped over a couple people, though. She mentioned I, body, did, I did, I did. It's like wild. Uh, but <laughs> we also see um, the Angel of Death, I believe, played by Patrick Ewing. Yes? So weird. There's the big shot of, like, all the different people saying things. Did any of you recognize the guy who said, the living are deaf"? Do you know who that is?
1: No. I recognize him in the movie, but I couldn't tell you who it is. It's Samuel L. Jackson. Wow. What? The same
0: year as Goodfellas. What? But the thing is, he's dubbed. Oh. It's not his voice.
3: So it's so odd when you know that and you just hear
0: him. It's like, that's not Samuel.
1: That is insane.
3: I would know if if you heard Samuel Jackson. Like he has a very distinctive voice. Rice, yes, <laughs> very. We- I I did love that line of like I don't know what they're doing. Like I guess they're just communicating with like, you know, through the sp- spirit world or whatever. But I I I did love that moment. And I yeah, that's so fascinating.
2: Yeah.
1: There's also the, the angelic jazz. Hell band. yeah, yeah. The big bands. Like, <laughs> <away
0: Yeah>. <laughs> Especially when they get their big solo <laughs> moment. The camera goes wild, like zooming in and out.
3: I love. I, I, I this entire sequence is so weird and fascinating, and like it's almost like this term is used so poorly on Twitter these days. But is very like mm-hmm. David Lynch inspired, like in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it, it feels. I mean, especially with the band, the band feels very David Lynch, and like
0: well, not just that, but even like the fast motion that happens there, and then because this starts off the thing where like Ed Flanders ends up dying and includes, like, that weird, like, almost, like, sensory evaporating thing after they see him, and he's, like, stitched for his head, Mm -hmm. like, they put it back on him, Uh, and Mm -hmm. then, like, that whole scene later happens, especially that one shot where George C. Scott arrives at the hospital and everyone's looking at him, like, oh. Oh, Oh, god. So brutal. So it reminds me of, like, The Bitten Unbreakable with, like, Bruce Willis proceeding out, (laughs)
1: honestly. The entire enuma of that scene from, like, like George C. Scott seeing uh, Father Dyer in the dream yes. and him saying, I don't know which one of us is dreaming this, and him looking at him and responding I'm not dreaming. And then that entirely still shot outside of Kinderman's house yes. where he gets the phone call and he does a what are you telling? And that whole, I don't think my stomach had dropped that way watching a horror movie in a long yeah. time. That scene is genuinely is, really chilling. Yeah, it
3: is a genuine like surprise when you you find out what's happening in that scene and like, you're like, Oh, and you, you get sad because like you have seen these guys like have this really, this fun, like back and forth earlier. And you're just, even you are just like, Oh no. Like why? Mm. Yeah. And just like, I love that. I do love the shot of like the house and the phone call. And this movie has like five like different moments when a phone rings and it's the loudest thing ever. And it is like, so impactful it's great i love it
0: the thing is it's just this movie does such a great job of being like an incredibly entertaining movie while also just being a very bizarre film because like there's a lot of stuff that like i think would be really fucking creepy in like a modern horror movie but i think i think the big difference i would say is this feels like because it's 1990 i would argue this is probably the dying days of like massive practical effects especially for like that ending I don't believe there's a digital effect in there. So it feels very kind of like analog in its own way with particularly one of my favorite shots. Uh, if I'm on zoom here and I have my avatar is the shot where like near the opening where like the doors of the church open and it's like father and
3: then the Jesus on the cross statue opens its eyes and bleeds. It's incredible. It's It made me do, like, you know, you remember that, like, the AMC intro where it had, like, the guy with the popcorn? popcorn, Yeah. I did that. I was like, oh, my God, that's, yeah. (laughs)
1: Oh, so good. I found it a couple of times just to make sure that happened. Yeah,
3: Yeah. (laughs) right? And, like, uh, this is something I I think is so interesting about this movie is that, like, it's made in 1998. And yet, like, we were talking a bit about, like, the the cell towards the end and how that feels very like grimy, very finchery, which feels very like nineties in my opinion. But sure. like the rest of this movie does not feel like a movie made in 1990. And it's very much like a, it's a detective story more than like a, a, a horror movie. And it, it, it just feels different like a, from a different time. And I think that that's such an interesting, yeah, such an interesting thing to, make especially in 1990 as like this a whole nother you know horror is about to go in a different direction in in the 90s but it, yeah mm-hmm. it's so interesting getting this kind of movie in in 1990
0: it truly it does feel like it's kind of the last lingering feel of the 80s honestly to me is what mm-hmm. i kind of felt this <laughs> whole time because yeah there's that sort of um more organic stuff but even just like something as simple as the the one shot for the opening credits where like, initially, I believe the way the sequencing works, it's, like, the, um, the you see a bunch of stuff from Georgetown, including the steps, and then you hear the Exorcist theme for, like, 30 seconds, and then it, like, drowns out, and then we get that just that shot of, like, the credits are going, and we're just going down this street in Georgetown. You can see the Exorcist house from the first movie in the corner of, like, the end of that shot. It's over there. So... It's pretty much the movie just announcing right from the start, like, we're not doing that again. We're doing something mm-hmm. really different, guys. Mm-hmm. And the rose with, like, Thomas at the very end and all that stuff is
1: just, like, it really sets the tone beautifully for this whole movie. The way we see Thomas twice in that scene has always stuck with me yeah. as just being, like, kind of bizarre and just really unsettling, mm-hmm. knowing the characters. fate. And I think something really interesting about what both of you guys are saying, in the sense that this movie is more of a detective story than it is a, a horror movie. I would argue that's part of why it really is the, from from my experience, the Exorcist sequel and film that really captures the vibe of the original so well. Yeah, because I think even beyond like even beyond the the Christian specifics of the first movie, I think what's so chilling about the first film is this idea of Chris McNeil being like an ordinary woman who suddenly finds herself in the middle of this like metaphysical cosmic battle between these two invisible forces that up until now she had no reason to believe in or even entertain the thought of on a day-to-day. And I think taking Kenderman's character and making him that figure as a detective allows the movie to operate in a similar way where like, his day to day is so structured and focused on the logic and the facts and the evidence of what he does as a detective. that To throw him in the midst of this situation that's personal because of the Gemini Killer and like other Karis and all of these different elements, but it is still so like cosmic and massive and scale in a way that's imperceptible. I feel like it just captures the magic of the first movie. Well,
0: well yeah, I I completely a hundred percent agree with you, especially with just the factor of like. Our sort of major cast is made up of people like you mentioned. You have sort of the structure in various different ways. Where you got a priest who we see early on him doing the consecration with this ultra boy Kevin Corrigan, by the way, so <laughs> which was weird. wild. And he's just—he looks like he's a teenager. He just like got I'm his acne out. Off <laughs> Literally, he's just—it's it's, so he, weird. That is yeah, crazy. it's wild. Um, and you see, so the, his structure of like i you know the church and like reminding you about like uh, jason miller's character and everything and then um you have Georgie scott who was detective as you going through the procedures like or like there's that great scene where um they're talking about like the confessional scene which we haven't talked about that confessional scene that's fucking terrifying in like the oh first 15 gosh. minutes of this movie when you see nothing but even the, in the aftermath of it when like they're investigating and they're just like well obviously he'd have to pull through here to make sure no one thought that Father Dyer was dead. Or this father was dead. And then doing that, and it's like, because obviously they're the same prince, right? From the Thomas case. Are they not? And then <laughs> just that reveal, like, what the fuck? Multiple fingerprints. Just it's a, It is a great detective story. If you just went into this, like, if I sat someone down and, like, did not... I just gave it the title Legion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, they would just be, like, so that flabbergasted like that's what this is <laughs> it's it's such a great unraveling of just like when the supernatural comes into like this these systems those two and then i should mention i referenced him earlier scott wilson as the guy who runs like that whole uh, like sanitarium area and like the various people we see there like the lady with the radio if that's not my radio
3: mine's newer <laughs> i love i i absolutely adore the the her line when when uh when scott walks back into that room and she says you're the radio. You're the radio repair guy. It, it's such a sweet <laughs> moment. It's just, just a little like moment of humanity that I just think is so like nice. And the way Scott like kind of like cracks a smile is so, is great. Yeah.
1: If I need to talk about how Lynch-y in this movie feels, because uh, I was getting massive
3: log lady vibes. Right. From that lady. Yeah. Yeah. And, but and,
1: and,
3: just... and this is
0: like 1990, so this is during Twin Peaks' first season
1: airing, right? Wow, I think
3: Sounded I think right. you're right. Let's find out. Or it's eighty nine. I don't know. It's like eighty nine, ninety. It's one of those cusp shows. Uh, April eighth, nineteen ninety. So yeah. Yeah. Huh. This later. That's later in the summer. Um,
0: but yeah. So it's it's interesting. there's a, that kind of parallel. But yeah, Scott Wilson. I just wanted to bring up that like I love the, that bit where he is like rehearsing. Uh, his lines because he's just like he can't even fathom that's part of like the thing that i was ranting about here he's just like trying to read like this is what i'm supposed to say i don't believe it i don't believe any of this i have to like rehearse it like this is a play because i can't not which for the record the exorcist the first movie's been adapted as a play this would make a great play i think that kind of works like
1: the state of like i should say dramatic play it's pretty interesting that you say that because i'm pretty sure before we hopped on i was just like reading about it, and I don't know about the movie specifically, but there actually was an ad- a stage adaptation of Legion. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it was more so focused on the book or, like, a combination of the two, but the story of uh, uh, the entire thing, the story, uh, was adapted into a theatrical play, which I think is really interesting. Huh. Uh,
3: yeah, that's... It is, yeah. It, yeah, in 2010, it was uh, in Chicago. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, bring it I back, guess. revival <laughs> on Broadway. <laughs> one one of the things I love, and we were talking about like my favorite George C. Scott like scene, and just more about him. I think uh, a scene I love is the scene. Um, I can't remember which for. It, it's in the in the theatrical cut. It's when him and Dyer have like that lunch. It's like after they see the movie and after the the carp conversation and everything. Yes. And it, kind of talking about what you were talking uh, about earlier, Krishan, of, like, I love the way that this character is, like, yeah, he's he's a, te- a detective, and the, and that's how he sees the world, but also there is that sort of, like, and we see this a lot with, like, detective characters of, like, the world is horrible, and, like, it's full of murder and everything. And, like, <laughs> there is that scene in The Lunch where they're, like, talking, and he's talking, like, we have cancer, and there's murder out there, and it it, it is... I think, giving you this character's worldview without kind of, I think, going into that stereotype of, like, the jaded... I guess in some ways and it does, they, but, like... They, there is, you know I think, I
0: mean? w- one clue to that is, I'll just say, I'm not going to repeat the word that George C. E. Scott says at one point to describe, like, the horrors of the world, like cancer, and... He just describes a certain type of baby. I'm not going to say the adjective. Uh, it oh, was yeah. really upsetting. Mm-hmm. And I think he just kind of, like... that. That works for, like I said earlier, there's the earlier scene too where he's like first introduced in the police station and he's just like talking to the guy about, like, he's like, you, when you talk about rabies and the joke that he <laughs> like mistook it for rabbis, and it's like, you're a racist. And then he has the, this is another slur as he's leaving, which is like, wow, okay. So it just, it kind of smacks you with like, this guy's charming, but also he's an old man
3: who uses yeah, words he think- wouldn't use. <laughs> and like it, but but i think that that like the way his worldview and that those kind of details i think it, yeah. it it becomes a movie much like the first exorcist with like the the chris mcneil character a character who is like not religious doesn't really believe but this is doing kind of a similar thing of like that sort of absence of faith and like but it's doing it in, in a in a way that's interesting that i yeah is different but again, has those themes of the original, which I think is another reason why this movie is great. Especially just doing it also with, like, characters who were there,
0: who mm-hmm. you, you can mm-hmm. remember from the first exorcist, but not just Reagan mm-hmm. and Pea Soup and, you know, the, the whole spiel, which is what's very interesting mm-hmm. also about just... I want to briefly talk about this, because I also watched, along with The Heretic... Both versions of Exorcist 3. And I would seen The Exorcist earlier this year, the first one. I watched for the first time Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist, and Exorcist The Beginning. Um, which you both haven't seen, right? Neither of you have seen these. No, I have
1: not. I saw Dominion as a young child. Okay. <laughs> I think it, yes. I saw it as a young child. Uh, what I very much shouldn't have so I remember it's in pieces well I'm curious if
0: which version that actually is because there's the whole story with that movie is that Dominion was originally Mm -hmm. shot by Paul Schrader our favorite Facebook poster himself um and and Swifty and Swifty of course the biggest (laughs) Swifty of all uh basically was like got hired to direct this movie um very quickly and it's just kind of like a paycheck thing for him but he's like I'll do something with it Uh, And then the studio got it and was like, this is fucking boring. We're reshooting most of this. They reshot and rewrote on the fly 95% of the movie. And they kept a couple of actors, just mainly Stellan Skarsgård, which is like, you can just see two alternate Stellans doing the (laughs) beginning, which is like, and the whole thing is he plays Father Marin. And this is kind of at like his backstory of when he was like doing missions And during one mission, um, in depending on which version you watch, either he comes across this child who has been horribly injured and then brings him to the hospital and gains sort of like a a connection with uh, the hospital staff to some degree. Or if you watch the beginning, he just comes in and he has the hots for that doctor. They make out at a certain point. um, And then like... The it, it turns out that like oh no there's just like some evil exorcist demon that lives in like a cave um, that occasionally possesses people and there are big CG wolves <laughs> this is a real movie this sounds ridiculous. that they spent money to make another movie better so it's one of the worst pieces of garbage <laughs> I've ever seen Rennie Harlan <laughs> I'm sorry man it was fucking real bad so then the studio was like Oh, my God. And it, it did not do very well. Shit. Uh, well, you know what? We have his version. Let's give him nine months and $35,000 to finish post-production. Not, not a lot. No. <laughs> not a lot of money at all. <laughs> so no wonder Dominion, when it comes out, it literally looks like effects are unfinished. <laughs> like, certain move. just this is incomplete this should have, like, watermark 2-5. Like, this is an early edit. <laughs> it's rough. Uh, but, it still is interesting. It at least has more to say. It's definitely much more about, like, because the big sort of backstory moment is about, like, Father Marin uh, is in World War Two and he has to, like, basically, like, he gets confronted by Nazis, and has to choose to, like, have certain children shot. In the, like, Dominion version, that's the prologue, and it's brutal, and it's upsetting, and it gives you sort of a a tapestry for the whole movie versus they cut to that like multiple times throughout the beginning and it's just scatter shot and it looks like it's edited like a saw movie or some bullshit. It's mm. so dumb. <laughs> it's...
3: Well, this is what, what year? 2004. So...
0: 2004 for the beginning, 2005. Where by the right. way, uh, that one, the Paul Schrader one that came out later made somewhere around like $400,000 because they released oh. it in very few
2: theaters.
3: Oh,
1: That hurts. Oh, wow. You know. I can't think of another example of a movie marred by studio interference in that way. Yeah. Like, where we got both versions of them, and the initially shot version came out afterwards. That's so, so bewildering.
0: It's so one of the most weird. fascinating production stories I've ever heard, and I want a full, full... Just documentary about this. Get Paul Schrader to just talk about it. I would love to hear him rant. I'm sure about this.
3: I'm sure he'd be game now. Yeah. <laughs> just you it, know, do yeah.
0: his uh, what? What is it? The the Baumbach movie, right? Did um, De Palma? Yeah. Just every director should do that.
3: Especially because I think I feel like Schrader in the past few years has really like become like more available and like open. Like obviously he's on Facebook and everything, but like I feel like he's just yeah, like Facebook done messages, and he's like hey, and you, stuff. you want to do yeah. documentary? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird that he made an exorcist movie though it's just what a strange career he has yep um
0: so yeah so that's what we get after this point we get that by the way keep in mind the exorcist 3 when it opened in august of 1990 uh it may it cost 11 million made 44 so it's not that bad, not bad. honestly especially coming off of exorcist 2 like, you guys should be glad that <laughs> <Ben. laughs> this didn't fucking crater sink. I think they, they made a decent amount, but to be fair, with, like, The Exorcist, famously, like, there's not a lot of huge data about, like, the weekly grosses of The Exorcist, but it made, like, what, $400 million in all of its theatrical runs and shit. That's wild. Like, yeah, that's crazy. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> Insanely successful. Yeah. Uh. So then just getting a move to the mix three times its budget. It's like, oh, that's fine, you don't need to rush to do Exorcist 4. And when we do, we'll get the whole thing settled.
1: From the start. We'll do it right. We'll do way. it right.
0: <laughs> and we won't do it twice. And fail both okay. times. Uh, that movie, by the way, made $78 million at the beginning. That's, like, okay. disappointing. On, like, it Me. had a 50000000 something dollar budget, but, like, that's still not as bad. as like, you released a version later that made pennies. <laughs> <laughs> And then there wasn't anything, except for the show. I don't know, has anyone seen the show? Because I've heard the show's actually good. It lasted two seasons on NBC. Gina Davis is in it. No.
1: I have not, but I've heard very similar things. Yeah, I hear a lot too. of people say that it's a really great addition to the franchise, which interests me.
0: But yeah, so then Excess Believer came out. And you can hear on the Patreon once again, because we're not going to talk about it here. No. We, we let out <laughs> everything about that. Um, but yeah, so you know what? Back to actresses three. Uh, I mentioned the Brad Dorif thing. Best Sir Brad Dorif moment from everybody. Brian this time, For Sir Gr- the best Sir sort of delivery or bit of him in either
3: version. Oh, I love in the it's in the director's cut I think when um, when Kinderman goes to see him in the room one of the first times, and it's the scene he's like uh, Brad Dorif like falls asleep right because the whole thing is that he sleeps and then he like. He, then that's how he transfers his mind to someone. It's very weird. Well, right? the,
0: the implication, <laughs> what I love how that's explained is actually, it's just in, especially that cut, it's a lot more about just like, hey, you know what? Uh, there was a point, I think it's in, this is also in the theatrical cut where he's just talking about like, uh, you know, as you might know, an exorcism is involved in uh, your father, Karis, doing, <laughs> like, and he just explains this whole thing, just this, like a, it's like he's talking to a child about this
3: exorcism thing,
0: right? But also like a lawyer, like two parties are into the system. Like he's like a sleazy lawyer as well.
3: It's a weird. It's a weird scene. but um, I I just love when like uh, Scott is like leaning in like very slowly and he goes like, Damien, and then like uh, uh Dorif wakes up and is like, no, like getting all in his face and it's very like jarring and weird, but. I loved it. I thought it was just so, like, manic and crazy and such a weird performance, but... To be fair, the only
0: version of it that exists, because the thing is with that director's cut, it includes a lot of stuff from the theatrical that just they couldn't salvage, including, like, that shot where it's just,
2: no! He is
0: inside with us! Like, that whole thing. Yeah. He, Mm -hmm. just going hog wild on that, yeah. A great, sort of, Hannibal Lectory performance. A year before, Anthony Hopkins did it. Wow uh yeah that's chucky all right but anyway uh <laughs> what well, about you krishan your favorite sort of rad dwarf bit.
1: it's funny you say that because there's so many moments in the movie where i was watching it, and i was like yeah that's bleeding in there a little uh, bit he does
0: say at one point child's play detective uh,
2: he does uh, he does
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think uh i think out of the many scenes that we get with them are with our, like some of the best stuff in the movie every time we cut to him it's 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 really phenomenal i think i love how like personally upset you can see him get when he talks about his execution i think Mm -hmm. there's something like i think there's a really really interesting vulnerability there and the way that he talks about the experience of being dead i think is the only real time we see him kind of like reflect and like Almost like an offended, almost like an upset way at the thought that his work was cut short so unceremoniously. I think it's a really interesting you know, he's, page he's of pace like, of his career. Okay,
0: Krishan, you know, he won, he, you know he's proud of his work, and I, I appreciate pride in the workforce. A <laughs> lot
3: doesn't he say like, um, like they had me in the electric chair. How would you like it? Like, doesn't he say something like that? Which is like, right? Well, yeah. If, how
1: would you feel? Or yeah. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just such an interesting moment. And like with just the mechanics of how the Gemini killer as a character functions in the movie and like what we find out about him and the whole Karis stuff and him taking over his body, I think it's like a really interesting moment where you can see there's a little bit more attached to that mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit more that he doesn't want to talk about. And then specifically the ways that he talks around the demon that they both both him and Kinderman kind of share experience with. I think it's really interesting how Brad dorse's performance tiptoes around that stuff in a way that makes the implication really horrifying and fascinating to think about while giving us just enough to make the story make sense. Yeah,
0: I think that's one of my hence why my my favorite bit of him is the bit where he's uh, talking about how he did all that stuff with the bottles and it's like, I mean, lieutenant, I did that without dropping <laughs> a single little bit of blood that's showmanship that's so good (laughs) yeah
3: oh man he's so creepy like he's so like unsettling yeah it's a great like horror performance i think of like this this, a villain except like i i love how he refers to like the master and and, like we we don't really dive into that at all but like it's it's there and you can just kind of like you can gleam whatever you whatever you want from that, it and it, it, it's so unsettling, I think.
0: Well, especially when you use the Legion concept, which we haven't really talked about that much, mm. even though it's a title of this movie, Um, where you do see some of these people, like the character you were mentioning earlier, the radio lady, how she's the one who is on the ceiling, right? <laughs> when he comes yes. back. Right. Another, That's her just really creepy moment. <laughs> really creepy bit. Just any of that, including, you know, we haven't talked about it. Arguably, The thing this movie is most famous for. Uh, The jump scare that happens. This is, by the way, I didn't talk much about this, but the way I became aware of Exorcist 3 was this on some kind of, like, I don't know, internet video, I believe, of just, like, top ten underrated horror movies you haven't seen. And I was aware Exorcist 3 had existed, but I hadn't seen it really before. And I think what's so fascinating is, like, knowing Exorcist and having heard of stuff of Exorcist 2, I was just like, okay, I'm curious to see what this is. And it just felt like when I watched it in, I don't know, high school, shortly after I saw Exorcist, um, it was such a weird, it was a shock. I was just like, movies could be made like this? This is a fucking wild-ass movie that, like we mentioned, doesn't have any gore, doesn't have even Brad Dourif himself. I love the fact that in contrast to Reagan, who obviously was famous for like the dick smith makeup and the pea soup and all that other stuff the contrast is just like brad dorf ain't got anything on him he is clean shaven he (laughs) has his curly hair and he's in that straight jacket uh and he's still fucking terrifying (laughs) despite any frills that's the thing this movie has no frills to it but it's able to pull off something like that or the jump scare talk about the jump scare we gotta do it Ryan.
3: the the hallway scene yes um it's it's just literally like it, it, this this feels like a textbook example of like building and releasing tension in the most perfect way i think where like it is it's all one shot like the camera i don't think ever moves and just the way that like you're watching that door and you're watching like the nurse and the police officer down the hallway they're just like fucking around you know doing stuff and it it it's drags on for a while. It's a pretty like long scene, and mm. I, I mean, like, just you know, you, I, I love her kind of waking up the guy, and he's like, the fuck are you doing? It's uh, You're waking me up here. Come on. I think you're doing this on purpose. I'm gonna yeah. report you. What's your name? <laughs> Him saying I'm gonna report you is really funny. <laughs> but, like, and the way you're just like, oh, okay, that's, it's over, and it, it's such a perfect scene in the way that, like, the way it like the, the little zoom and the music cue and the way it cuts, it, it's so yeah, it's it's so perfect. What what do you guys think about this scene?
1: Yeah, it's 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 absolutely chilling. It's it's phenomenal. I think I think the first time I saw the movie, I had seen that scene out of context like a thousand times as part of like jump scare montages mm-hmm. and like like just that kind of thing, putting together scenes like that. So when I was watching the movie and we got to that shot, even before we got to the actual scare of it, that it's just that framing and her standing at the desk, I was like, "This is what this movie, what this scene's from."
2: Right. I was like,
1: <laughs> kind of shocked because I'd seen it so many times, and like, absolutely, Brian. I think it's just like such a masterclass in how to raise and ratchet tension and play with your audience's expectations. Because she does go to talk to that guy, and we get like a minor jump scare out of him waking up out of his sleep and scolding her. And it really gives this like pressure valve release feeling where you're like, there can't be anything more than that. can right. there? And then she opens that door, looks in and closes it behind her. And it's just like, it's the suddenness. Absolutely chilling team.
0: Shout out. Also, I sh- we should mention Tracy Thorne plays uh, this character. Um, and she was she's very solid in this movie because like she feels so natural of like I the moment I saw her like even earlier in this she felt natural like this is a lady who works a lot of shifts I does not see her mm-hmm. kid that often like that kind of thing immediately and then like all the frustration that builds up we're just like well I gotta do the final rounds and then I gotta look over here and oh god this is sure report me I don't, oh, fuck me fine I gotta go like you, this is her inner monologue this whole time it's just her like dealing with all the bullshit of her job. And then uh, somebody just kills her, and we don't really see it, and that's it. It's, she's gone. Bye.
3: <laughs> it, yeah, it's just the like the the bluntness of the cut to like the door, yeah. and then we see George C. Scott, and he's like, he, he just looks so like sullen and like sad, and uh, and you get it. It's just it's all right there. It, it it's so perfect. I think.
1: Is there's also the super obvious but like really effective immediate cut from him with like the garden shears behind her to the decapitated statue of Jesus. And it's so Mm -hmm. on nose. but it's so, so effective. And I also love the way that like she's like doing her rounds and she's like walking up and down the hallway. You see that one lone cop sitting in the, in the row of chairs next to the exit. And I think it's so clever how they use that guy as, like, a way to gauge the safety of the scene. Yeah. Because he departs, and then it's, like, seconds later that he's stopping her with shears. Right. And I think that's so subtle, but it's, like, such a comforting thing to be like, oh, well, at least she's got this guy here. Oh, no, he's getting up and leaving. Yes. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah.
0: And And this stuff, by the way, in terms of also scary things, we gotta talk about what's in the director's cut is the climax, which is fascinating. There's a certain point where that tool is used earlier. We saw it with, like, that great shot of, like, the guy talking about, like, breaks bones, snap, <laughs> just establishes, like, the weird clinical brutalness of this weapon, and then we see that, and then we see this whole thing where Legion is established with, like, you know, the ladies get possessed. This other lady who was in the hospital um, is now in a nurse's outfit after killing the nurse, and it's, like, this, this real tension point where, like, that's going on, like, the horror is building. The bit where his wife picks up the phone... And she's like, hi, dear. Oh, you're sending a package over? And we come over to George C. Scott, and he just hears a dialed song. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucked up. And they, it's such a simple detail. I I would just say, a, a big thing we didn't talk about, William Peter Blatty originally developed this as a un- script with, uh, like, a story with William Friedkin. They were actually going to collaborate in, like, the 80s. And every studio who's was just like, yeah, you know, come back, pitch a Sexist 3, we'll totally do it. And they got this pitch, and they were like, no. We're we're good. No, not that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So then he made it into the novel, and then yeah. So Friedkin has his fingerprints on this to some degree. William Peter Blythe was trying to get him back to direct, and apparently a very sweet thing between the two of them because they have a very much like a friendship. He's just like, you know what, man? It feels like you know what this movie's supposed to be. You do. That's it. pretty cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's- Um And so yeah, we got this movie that has some of the 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 freaking-esque touches there. Um, but at the same time, this movie still has, like, some of these sort of wackier directions, including with, like, George C. Scott, I will say, referencing just stuff he says in the theatrical cut, this isn't in the directors, where he just, Jason Miller's talking to him about just, like, what do you believe? Lieutenant, what do you believe? And he's just like, I believe in filth. I believe in yeah. <laughs> Like, that monologue is so fucking good. And I'm glad George C. Scott came back to do just that yeah such a good bit (laughs) and especially i like like the thing is i prefer what he is like what's happening to him in that cut where like he's going up onto like the ceiling and he's just stuck there as opposed to father morning is like on the ceiling but all of a sudden like he starts like
3: losing his skin (laughs) yeah that's the most like that's the most like graphic stuff in the movie i think in any version of the movie it is like pretty brutal right it is, yeah. It, it's, it feels watching, like a saw like, trap,
0: oh. basically, but just in, like, 1990. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it... he just, like, gets up, and, just, and, and then he, of course, is still alive longer to be like, I have to disable the demon. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> Quick, yeah, I've made that's... an
3: opening so the gunshot can happen. Yeah. It, it's a, that, that's the part, I think, that, like, I like that part, the sort of... I like the, the him being on the ceiling and, like, his skin is being peeled off, because it is, like, this almost, like release catharsis kind of moment for the movie in a way where like there is finally some gore or some blood that you're seeing. Right. But I will say like, him like lying on the floor, like still being alive, like, Oh, I'm still defeating you. I, I don't, that part's a bit, I I could do it. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to our ex-believer
0: thing once again on the Patreon, but I bring up sort of like in that in this movie, there's a, there's a whole thing of like, maybe Kinderman can just save him by just being his buddy. Cause that's really what the movie's about. It's just really, cause Brian, I think this really hit so close to the two of us. Cause it's about when your movie bro just gets possessed, you know, briefly by a demon and then killed. That's a bummer. That'd be that's such true, a bummer. It is. Right. <laughs>
3: the the worst <laughs> kind of friendship to dissolve due to death. A movie buddy friendship. No one to no it one is. to discuss and critique and critique. <laughs> <laughs> is the demon also into movies? because I feel like that's something that can... Could- what's Pazuzu's top four in Letterboxd? Come on, Pazuzu. Reveal. <laughs> the Exorcist, of course. There's, like, the scene where, like, um, uh, Dyer early on is, like, talking to the other, like, priest. Yeah. Um, and he's like, he's like, what's your favorite movie? And the priest is like, the fly. Yes. <laughs> it's just weirdly- well, especially,
0: right, but right before that, the buildup's also great, where he's just talking back and forth with them about like just yeah i go to the the pictures uh, and that's where he reveals the whole thing but like oh i gotta make him cheer him up because it's a day um and he's just like yeah we go see it's a wonderful life i've seen it
3: 37 times
0: commendable
3: <laughs> <laughs> and like there's a there's another line uh it's when like george c scott is like uh it's the scene where his daughter like comes in and he's like, like hi bye i'm going off to dance and he says like look out for red shoes which i guess is also like a a dance thing but also just reminds me of the movie the red shoes that's right it was interesting
0: right because that's also like very disorienting right after i believe we get the bit where he comes home and he's eating the donut and then she just talks about like oh yeah my mother said something anti-semitic right and that just <laughs> yeah. that just happens there it's very
3: weird and <laughs> it comes yeah. out of nowhere
0: <laughs> once again that's sort of like evil that's uh, that's just bubbling on the surface like oh yeah that's that just happens like this is an idyllic casual uh sort of suburban neighborhood which Contrast, when we finally get back, I, I picked this up hours ago, but the fucking, <laughs> uh, that ending with, like, the French Connection chase. That's why I brought up Friedkin. Jesus Christ. The, the, the chase feels like a tribute to William Friedkin's big thing in the French Connection. The shot composition and even just, like, the way Scott is being very hackman. They're similar actors in terms That's of, true. like, when they yeah. scream <laughs> about something <laughs> and we <Yeah>. go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I never even thought about that. But it's so that it's definitely has to be some kind of like intentional homage. And I do think it's really interesting that that is one of the only moments in the movie where a pace kind of picks up like right. a high octane energy to match what's going on. I actually, I think the chase sequence is in and of itself just a really excellent set piece. Yes. It's
0: a weird car chase in the middle of this very grounded horror movie. And that was that's why it's so interesting that that's the climax of a director's cut. Because then right after that, he goes over and shoots <laughs> Fred Torn. <toward him. laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's it.
0: And then, by contrast, I think it works a lot better as sort of, like, the penultimate moment. Right before something were to mm-hmm. happen once again. But it still was, like, terrifying in its own right. That lady, that actress, who just comes in and is just like, can you help me? Is it bedtime? And then... And they have that calm. where it's like, even right before that, like, the other cop comes in about shooting. Like, no, oh, it's fine. She's just... It's an old lady who took the... Oh, my
2: God, no! <laughs>
3: yeah. So good.
1: <laughs> Love that really, really brief insert of the grandma grabbing Julie's head hair. <laughs> hair, yeah. Just grabbing <laughs> In the shears. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious.
0: <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh we've been talking for a while. The Exorcist 3. So let's do some final thoughts. Anything we didn't mention or anything you want to you Just summarize about your opinions on this movie for Sean.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think Exorcist three. It's pretty bizarre. It's very very good in its own way. It's like such a different experience from the first movie. And uh, I know we didn't mention it, but I did think it was super interesting. And this is probably something that you guys already know. I think it's like really interesting talking about like the Gemini Killer of it all and all of that. I did not realize until I was just like reading up on the movie myself afterwards uh, after rewatching it. Um, the movie's narrative was kind of sort of inspired by the fact that the first movie prompted the real
3: life Zodiac killer Yes! In a yes, that's true! That's crazy. I literally had never considered that. That's insane. Yeah.
0: He's the guy in the original actress Bryant. There's that bit where like they're doing EKG tests on Reagan. Uh-huh. And that guy was setting up the EKG. That's the killer guy.
3: <laughs> Jesus, that's... <Yeah>. <laughs> Wild. <laughs>
1: wild. Absolutely wild. And then on top of that, uh, the movie was also apparently a favorite movie of Jeffrey Dahmer, which I think is really interesting (laughs) considering (laughs) the context of the movie as it stands. Apparently he would wear eye contacts to look like Jason Miller in the theatrical cut, which is a whole, that's a whole can of worms. But (laughs) I just think it's interesting that the movie sandwiched between the Zodiac Killer and Jeffrey Dahmer in a really fascinating way. Being a movie about a serial killer, yeah, very, very disturbing, real world implications. But yes, it's it's awesome. I feel like I feel like it just the Exorcist as a franchise is in this weird place where there are so many sequels, and I feel like so many of them are very underseen, and like it's a shame because like a lot of them, from the sounds of it, aren't the best movies in the world the exorcist 3 absolutely deserves the title and it absolutely deserves to like exist within the legacy of the first movie because it's so similar but also so bold and different in ways that the first movie isn't and yeah, i'm so glad we got to talk about it because it is a movie that deserves to be seen i know it's like a bit of a cult classic but i feel like it deserves to be seen even beyond that Mm -hmm. just as like an awesome sequel to such a, a landmark movie in horror.
0: And, Krishan, actually, I wanted to ask you about this. How do you feel about this sort of in terms of a big difference between the two friends, Friedkin and Blatty, is that Friedkin is, did not believe in any sort of religion. And Blatty was very religious uh, throughout the rest, his whole life, including, I'll just say, he said some weird shit in 2012 about colleges and what they're telling children. That's just like, oh, okay. You can read that. It's uh, The guy had some weird views, but... How did you feel sort of that distinction, would you say, of, like, someone of faith versus someone not of faith with the first movie kind
1: of directing this story? It's super interesting because not knowing that beforehand, I would have guessed, based purely on the movies, that Friedkin would have been the more religious one. Just because, True. like,
3: mm-hmm.
1: the the original Exorcist has a bit of a downer ending in context, but it's also really reaffirming in the sense that, like... Father Karras is confronted with this insurmountable proof that, like, these things are real and these forces do exist. And he does what he does, but it's out of an affirmation and acceptance of these things. He's like, I mean, I might not be skilled enough to finish this exorcism myself, but now that I know that these things are real, I can engage with it on my own terms. And I've always that's always struck me as something that feels very like almost like a reckoning with religion itself. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting because I would have guessed it would have been the exact opposite. This movie feels, and maybe that's just my lens reading it, but this feels almost more cynical than the, than the original. And especially in the context of George C. Scott's final monologue to the demoniac killer, the one you were referring is I believe in filth and scum mm-hmm. and all kinds of yeah evil and all the things that exist it that's that's really interesting i would have never guessed that
0: yeah i kind of agree with you honestly vibes wise if i just went in blind taste test i'd probably concur with you <laughs> um but yeah so brian your final thoughts any lingering things we haven't talked about about Exorcist
2: three
3: yeah i mean like uh, so i mean thomas you know this i've recently been kind of getting more into the the various horror franchises of, uh, you know halloween and friday the, the season 15. yeah and literally it, yeah. it is and i never got into the exorcist as like a franchise in my, in my like i always imagined it was like oh it's that it's the william Friedkin movie and then they made some sequels. i don't know whatever it, um, like the jaws sequels very kind right, of because both
0: right. 70s auteur
3: driven masterpieces that had sequels and like i don't think you're ever going to touch Friedkin's movie it's a masterpiece I think I you know we've we talked about that earlier but like doing this which is such a weird and different direction for an exorcist movie and taking this approach of making it basically a a detective thriller and it 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 is such a bizarre sequel and yet it is like it's what I would love more of I think especially in like modern landscape where we are doing so many sequels and we're, you know, everything is a franchise now because everything is IP, but I would love just more stuff like this because it's so weird and so different and so not what I was anticipating when I, when you had recommended like months ago, like, hey, we should do Exorcist 3. It is just not what I was imagining. And it's so incredible and has such an incredible vibe to it and such an incredible tone and feels very much, like I said, of the 90s, but not of the 90s, because it is more, again, like a procedural, and it doesn't have a lot of gore or effects or anything, and, yeah, I, I I think people should see this, especially if you've seen the first one. I say, like, you know, don't watch The Heretic, or maybe do, I don't know, it's a it's a weird movie, but um, absolutely give this a, a watch. It's absolutely phenomenal.
0: Though also you mentioned like the modern sort of cinema thing. I think the closest we can ever get to that currently was referenced earlier when we talked about the Pope's exorcist, because spoilers for the Pope's exorcist, Ryan, we have to have a sidebar about this. Um, (laughs) the very end of the movie implies that Russell Crowe, who plays his father, who was actually a Pope's exorcist in reality, like based on a true story, big quotation marks, but he's just this Italian, big, Presched, I'm gonna do an exorcism, literally, pretty much. I'm Italian, <laughs> I'm good with it. He can do it. Um, and <laughs> I think what's so fascinating about it is just like at the very end, after this happens, like he has a pretty much a big exorcism battle. And at the very end, him and his buddy who did it, who got rid of that, you know, demon, are assigned by whatever this weird Vatican thing. It's just like, by the way, there are 199 other sites we found. <laughs> I want 200 Pope's Exorcist movies. Yes. All of them starring Russell Crowe. <laughs> I agree. It's what he, he should do for a... the rest of his career. Every six months from now until long afterward, <laughs> just needs to make a Pope's Exorcist sequel.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I just need to know. I need to know. Is this ironic? <laughs> like, I hear people talk about this movie in such a specific way. Okay. And it makes me so curious.
0: If I may say first, Brian, I think my thing yes. with The Pope's Exorcist is that – Exorcist 3, we were doing final thoughts, but fuck it. We're, we're still doing this. Um, the <laughs> the um, uh, Pope's Exorcist, I think it's a case of like – it's directed by Julius Avery who did – what was that movie with like the zombies? Overlord. 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 Oh, over, the World yeah. War II movie, yeah. And the Stallone superhero movie. Whatever. Uh, but he makes like a pretty average overall exorcist movie that's like not badly done, but not incredibly impressive. But you add Russell Crowe, who yes. is delivering just, <laughs> I think, an amazing kind of performance in this modern era of Crowe, which I love. Him fully embracing his heftiness with like Unhinged, which is an amazing film I've recommended to many people. Uh, <laughs> just this kind of schlocky era. I love it. And I think he's doing such a great job. It feels almost like Bronson in the Death Wish movies, but he's like fat <laughs> and he has like a Vespa and he does the bad Italian accent.
3: I want to see him do this forever. I, I've watched so many I, of these movies, no I, matter I, how bad they are. <laughs> I, I will say like, yeah, the movie, Pope Exorcist is like an okay movie, I would say. Yeah, like, I would agree with you, Thomas. I, but like Crow is having such a fun and weird time with it. That, like, I will yeah. say, that is worth it. Also, um, Franco Nero is the Pope. So, yes. you know. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> <Also> pretty cool. <laughs> oh,
0: that movie. But back to Exorcist 3, as I just deliver my final thoughts here. Um, we talked about the first Exorcist. Some people say it couldn't be touched. I have the bold take. I'm firmly stating this. This is my favorite Exorcist movie. I think <sighs> the first one's great. But I just think this one has a very interesting, specific flavor that's, like, not even one that I'm just that... Like, this is such a unique movie. I think that's really why. It just feels like such an interesting, Mm -hmm. unique blip on the sort of radar of, like, a horror fan that is just like, oh, hey, guess what? This third Exorcist movie, actually pretty good. Kind of like when people... You know, we just did a Friday the 13th thing, Brian, fairly recently. (laughs) Um, And during all of that, we would talk about how, like, yeah, just things that happen in a franchise uh but with that movie it's very gradual because there's 12 movies as opposed to exorcist where 73 77 1990 2004 2005 tv show in 2016 2017 <laughs> and then uh exorcist believer now in theaters probably still i don't know Halloween probably might be but um <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, it's just this, like, weird journey this franchise goes on, and this is just, like, the weird stop into, like, something completely different, something very unique, especially for the 90s gets so shit on for horror movies. Um, we might be talking about some 90s horror movies in a second when we get to our regular segment. But, yeah, I just think this movie does such a phenomenal job of bringing back that kind of, like, this, it's weird that this feels like it's, it is a legacy sequel in its own weird way to uh, the original yeah. Exorcist. It's like an early example of that, but this feels like one of the more interesting things where it's just like, we're not going to focus on the main guys. Remember those two? Where have they been these 15 <laughs> years or so? <laughs> been wild. But but yeah, I think it just it does such interesting different stuff. William Peter Blatty is a fascinating filmmaker, weird career, uh, curious, especially when you consider, how often does that happen where like someone who writes a novel directs the movie? Oftentimes they'll rewrite the movie. But how many times does yeah. that happen really it's like him Michael Crichton um mm-hmm. and then uh I don't know yeah
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a but, weird it's a very weird interesting like yeah thing to happen in yeah. this franchise I think yes for
0: sure but now our regular segment between the lines <laughs> So, Between the Lines is a segment where, you know, every episode, Brian, myself, and a guest, Chris Sean, is open to do this as well. Uh, we recommend a title that kind of fits, you know, with roughly our criteria of like something that's related to the movie we're talking about, or maybe is another pick for say an A for A typical horror
3: movie. Um, and so, uh, Brian, please start with your pick. Yeah, so I could not resist going into the weird third movie of the franchise, Uh, and I also just got the 4K. So I'm going with a movie from 1982, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Um, Oh, yeah. A very weird movie that reminded me of Exorcist 3 in a lot more ways, in that, like, Halloween 3 very much resembles kind of a conspiracy thriller more than a horror movie, and it is just a wild and bizarre movie, and... Absolutely gorgeous, has one of the best uh, introduction sequences, like credit sequences I've, I've seen in a movie, maybe. The score absolutely rules, of course, done by John Carpenter and... Um, Alan Hallworth. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Again, like Exorcist 3, a weird sequel where it is someone looking at a franchise and going, yeah, the original was great, but can we go down? further? Can we take this franchise into another level? Can we just do something different? We're not doing Michael Myers. This is a self-contained story. Michael Myers clearly died at the end of Halloween 2. The shape is dead, to quote John Furbender, who wrote Halloween 2. And they never brought him back. Um, but it is a, a great movie. a An unbelievable movie. It's so weird and so... Yeah, I I don't even know how to describe this movie because it is very uh, I think unique in the way that Exorcist Three is. Um, it's gorgeous. I love it. Um, yeah. Had, have you guys seen a Ex- uh, Halloween Three? What, what do you guys think of Halloween Three? Oh, they are Halloween films. There are. There's. Uh, oh, wow! Quite a <laughs> few of
0: them. No, I haven't. I haven't seen any of those. Interesting. I'm sure there's only a couple. Um. But yeah, I think that's, like, I've seen this movie, obviously. Yeah, I think this is one of my favorites of that Halloween franchise, which that is a franchise. Um, Some interesting bips and bops, but so much more. Like, we mentioned, you were talking about this when we did the Friday the 13th thing. Higher highs, lower lows. Yeah. right. Yes, in, in reference to that. And I think that's definitely, like... A problem where, like, Michael Myers, at a certain point in that series, like, when you get to five and six, you just realize, like, yeah, there's not a lot to do with this fucker. Um, <laughs> that's the Gordon Green movies, I would argue, did an interesting job, at least, with that. Uh, two very... Yep. Di- three different versions, especially of that killer. Um, and I-, I think Halloween 3 feels definitely just, like, a fascinating thing where you- we should mention the director's Tommy Lee Wallace, who was, <laughs> like, the guy who did all of the production design stuff, I believe, for the first Halloween and was Carpenter's buddy, I think, was in his band with the Clyde DeVilles or whatever. The Coop oh, DeVilles. That's so cool. Right, who do the song for Big Trouble in the Little China. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazing. There's a music video I would recommend seeing that. But um, with Halloween 3, yeah, Season of the Witch is such a fascinating thing. And it's such a bummer that we didn't get that anthology sort of angle with Halloween. Because mm-hmm. for the series called Halloween, Halloween encompasses a lot. You can tell so many different stories on mm-hmm. Halloween night, they don't just have to be Michael Myers. Halloween 3 tried that, and
3: the public booed them, booed them out of town. But it is, it is such a wonderful little, like, Halloween story. Yeah. In terms of, like, the holiday, not the franchise, obviously, but, like... The atmosphere of it. The atmosphere, just the, like, the creepiness of it, it's got, like, I mean, kind of ending of this movie, the final, like, 20, 30 minutes are just insane. Fucking you! You haven't mentioned Tom Atkins, and that's a failure on your part. <sighs> right, Tom Atkins, who is like, <laughs> really, this is a, also a movie that reminded me, like, oh, in the eighties, guys like this were like the leads. Where like, Hell yeah. he's kind of sleazy, but also kind of like, I don't know, he's such a weird leading man for this movie, and it's just wild. I love this movie. It obviously is not my favorite Halloween movie, but it is up there because. It gets better and better the more that I think about it. And it has a great little jingle. bump does. Yep. It be possibly the
1: grimmest ending in the entire franchise as well.
3: Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. It's such a chilling ending. Yeah, great. Great yeah. movie.
0: Uh, yeah, so I'm guessing you're a fan, Krishan, of, of Halloween 3 as well?
3: Oh, yes. Halloween 3 rules. That's
1: oh, such a good movie. The masks are also so like Hell yeah. yeah. It feels
3: very antithetical to the point, but I always kind of want it. They do look really cool. I was like, I would buy one of those, I think. The, the little pumpkin one looks so cool. That's the scary thing. It makes, you, it
0: makes you think like, oh yeah, I'd totally buy that. Yeah. And you would have been one of those kids in 1982 <laughs> really who wouldn't. died horribly by watching Channel 3. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great movie, for sure. But... Now it's time for me to talk about my film, uh, which, you know, I think it's a solid Halloween night movie to watch maybe after trick-or-treating's done and you want to, like, turn on the lights and watch a fun movie. I've got Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Night, uh, which came out in 1995 and is t- a spinoff of Tales from the Crypt, which was a TV show based on the old DC Comics that ran from, like, 89 to 1997. And the Crypt Keeper is here, John Kassir, doing the voice. Uh, very funny little introductions uh, where in the opening it looks like a slasher film. And then all of a sudden the, you hear someone say, cut, 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 cut. And it's the Crypt Keeper in like a little director's beret. Um, and <laughs> he's like, oh, come on. You're not even Robert Deadford. That's who I wanted for this role. Once again, the Crypt Keeper and his puns. Robert Deadford. And I believe Gory Cooper <laughs> as well great <laughs> and then he just introduces the movie which i think the weird thing about this movie is that tales from the crypt if you've watched that show at all uh i love that show and the big thing about it is they were morality tales uh usually they were just about like oh someone learning doing something horrible and then they come up and so a lot of the episodes were that and this movie isn't quite that um because after this crypt keeper introduction we get a lonesome highway in new mexico two guys are chasing after each other. One of them is our hero, William Sadler, one of the great guys of like this kind of 80s, 90s era, great character actor guy, uh, who is being chased in the other car by a bald demon who is personified as Billy motherfucking Zane. Hell yes. And he's got a cowboy hat on and he's chasing after him just like, I'm gonna get him. Oh yeah, I'll get him. And so William Sadler... Goes all the way to this like des- deserted, like in New Mexico, like middle of nowhere thing. He ends up making Billy Zane crash, and then Billy Zane just gets out of the burning car and just like, well, time to just go on foot. <laughs> he just follows him <laughs> to this little uh, motel, hotel sort of uh, in the middle of this desert, where I got guys. The cast of this movie living in this place. You got Jada Pinkett, Pre Smith, Thomas Hayden Church. C C H Pounder, uh, Dick Miller, um, Gary Farmer, uh, Charles Fleischer, voice of Roger Rabbit himself, Um, and yeah, just this amazing cast of people just stuck in this hotel when William Sadler comes in as now the towner, and then all of a sudden Billy Zane shows up and he's like, oh by the way, I brought some friends, and they're these horrific demon creatures that are just like coming in and, like, just vomiting on people and trying to possess them, basically. And so the only way they can be sealed off from this is fucking William Sadler pulls out a little vial, looks kind of ordained, full of blood, puts it on, like, the bottom of the doorway, and a force field shows up? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I'm not going to go much further, because that's just, like... Before you realize, okay, these are both magical beings to some degree. William Sather's reveal is very fascinating. Uh, Billy Zane's amazing. He's basically playing this like he's the genie in Aladdin, and I think that rules. <laughs> There's a bit where like he makes Dick Miller, who's one of the great like guys from a bunch of Joe Dante movies. Like imagine he's at um, you know like a Hawaiian vacation, and he's just at the fucking like bar, just like I gotta serve you up. And he's like smiling from ear to ear. <laughs> he's just talking. And by the way, his character, Dick Miller's character's name is Uncle Willie. Everyone just calls him Uncle Willie. Just a weird detail of this movie. <laughs> um, and I think it's an amazing, like, there's all sorts of great practical effects. It's like a universal studio movie uh, that kind of came and went. It cost $12 million, made $21 million. But it's really well made. I should mention the director, Ernest Dickerson.
3: Yeah. The
0: cinematographer. For Spike Lee, also directed Juice and Surviving Game previous to this. He does such a great job. It's such a dynamically shot horror movie. It's so well done. Jada Pinkett rules in this movie. This is my favorite thing she's ever done. I think she's genuinely really fucking great. Especially her, sort of like, Billy Zane's trying to, like, romance her in like a demonic way. And it's really fun. Thomas Hayden Church plays such a big asshole who tries to fuck everybody over Shocking. Of course he does. You would never expect that. <laughs> um... And C.C.H. Pounder loses an arm, and it's graphic, but she lives after that. And she's just hanging around like, I just lost an arm. It's really funny. (laughs) Honestly, she plays it very well. So good. Such a phenomenal movie. Um, Very underrated, especially considering uh, after this, Tales from the Crypt did a couple more movies. They did one Bordello of Blood, a movie about a vampire brothel that stars Dennis Miller. Real bad. Hmm. terrible film. <laughs> that does um, not sound great. <laughs> no. And then this movie called Ritual, the production, it was going to be the third Tales from the Crypt movie. Then I think the studio collapsed because it was after like the series had ended. And then years later, they re-released this movie with the Tales from the Crypt monocron and starring Tim Curry is in it, weirdly. Um, but they put in like, Crypt Keeper segments because that's also in Bordello of Blood. The Crypt Keeper comes back. He's the bright spot of that film. But then in the third movie, I've seen at least these segments... He plays like he's Rastafarian, but it's John oh. Kassir still. And oh, he's got no. like, yeah. Oh, right? It's weird. But anyway, Tales of the Crypt Demon. Have you guys seen it? <laughs> now, it's on the Criterion channel as we're recording this for the Halloween season, if you haven't seen it.
1: Yeah, I have not seen it, but I did notice it was on the Criterion collection, and uh, I'm very excited to get to it, along with mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. job by mm-hmm. Ernest Kate Vickerson, which, uh,
3: yeah. Yeah, yes. same. I, I I saw that it was on the Criterion Channel, and I was like, oh, I didn't know that Ernest Dickerson directed movies. I know he shot like all of Spike Lee's films early on, but yeah, I'm very curious because I fucking love Billy Zane. I just I think he's great. I love him in Titanic. I love him in Twin Peaks. I love him.
0: He's such a good villain too, and it's him embracing his baldness for the first time, really, oh, in such course. a really good way. Really Dang. rules. um And also, just a shout out. I. I would recommend seeing it, if nothing else, because it also does start with the Tales from the Crypt's, like, TV intro.
3: But Uh it's
0: presented in, like, you know, the widescreen and everything. And nothing else, I'm glad that exists. Because I would argue that's one of my top, like, five or six, like, TV opening sequences. Where it's just, like, a huge tracking shot through a model of the Crypt Keeper's house. (laughs) And then you get to the Crypt Keeper and he comes out of a fucking... Coughing like, <laughs> and then Tales from the Crypt comes down in goo, and then his dumb segment happens, and the episode happens. Great, yeah. But Krishan, what is your title for Between the Lines?
1: Um, keeping within the wheelhouse of movies directed by writers who also wrote the book, and then also um, detective stories that are kind of horror adjacent horror films. Uh, my recommendation is Lord of Illusions, uh, directed by Clive Barker. I feel like out of the movies that Barker has directed, Hellraiser is very obviously and very deservedly the one that gets talked about. And I don't think Lord of Illusions is as good as Hellraiser, but I think it's just a lot of fun. It's such a bizarre movie. It's uh, an adaptation of the character that he created in the books, Harry B. Amour, who's like a private detective who sort of kind of investigates paranormal like th- things or more so stumbles onto paranormal things. And uh, this one is kind of sort of a mystery about the world of big magic and like the corporate kind of like face of like magic and what that has become or what it was in 95 when the movie was released. Um, there's also a lot of like very fascinating cult elements because it was right around the time where, Heaven's Gate and Waco and like mm-hmm. the last vestiges of like Manson's impact on culture was sort of being felt out. So there's a lot of really fascinating kind of like cult angles to it. And I feel like it's very timely in a way for, for 95. That's uh, yeah, just an insane movie. I think it's got, it's a weird kind of dichotomy because it's got, unfortunately, some of the, worst VFX I've seen in a movie from that time. And I can't fault them too much for that because like, was 95, they were starting to experiment with digital effects in a way. And so it's just a learning practice. So some of that stuff kind of bogs down the experience. But also on the other hand, it has some pretty incredible practical effects, specifically towards the third act where we get into some more of the high stakes, almost apocalyptic stuff. There's a body transformation that I would say is almost just about as good as Frank's Resurrection in Hellraiser. Some really wonderful stuff there. Um, Harry Deamore is Scott Bakula, which is cool. He really embodies that kind of like 40s noir gumshoe detective, but in a different era in a way that makes him feel like a man displaced, which is kind of a cool dynamic. um Hank Jensen's in the movie, and I can't say for sure that she gives a good performance, <laughs> but it's fun that she's there. It's really awesome that she's there. Yeah, just a really really bewildering movie. It, I think my favorite thing about it is the way that it holds Clive Barker's texture. I love when Clive Barker work gets adapted into live action because the way he works within the realm of magic always has this like very exacting physical cost to it. The magic in clive barker's works is very very like brutal and demanding and sacrificial and lord of illusions kind of captures that through a t yeah just very very strange movie is it one that you guys have seen
0: i have seen it i, I went through pretty much like all of the clive barker directed movies because it's only uh, lord of illusions the first hellraiser and then nightbreed which have you seen that one krishan
1: i have actually not seen nightbreed
0: very good movie. Really dig that movie a lot. Because that's why I would say, I think Lord of Lucians of those three, is my least favorite. Um, but I think mm. there's still a lot of fun, interesting stuff. I think particularly uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, who's a great character actor. You might recognize yes. him. Like, there'll be blood or the mummy, Benny, on the other side of the <laughs> river. Um, is very good in it um, as well. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it, it's like you mentioned. It's, it's just such this, like, weird kind of turn where it, it's Clive Barker Jason, Like you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of his metaphysics and stuff like that. Having seen all of the Hellraiser films.
1: Just, Oh, oh. don't, don't do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. The Lord of illusions um, is, is definitely just like a curious movie, especially like sort of neo-noir kind of text. Movie. I love Scott Bakula, you know, the, the perfect kind of every man uh, to kind of weirdly fit into this role. And yeah, I think, Jensen's really solid. It's, it is definitely like a curiosity that I would hope would get more attention. It's a bummer that dude also didn't direct a lot more movies. I can't believe I forgot about Clive Barker. I was talking about this earlier, <laughs> about just like a guy who hmm, who else did that? Who else? I don't know. We're on the horror podcast. Really topic but you haven't seen it, have you, Brian?
3: I have not. I am yeah. gonna be honest. I this is the first I'm ever hearing of this. Um, oh. Krishan, you have oh. you have sold me. I. So much of what you you couldn't see, but my my eyebrows were raised. My, you know, like, yeah, it sounds sounds really great. I would love to watch it, but well, uh, especially because I know you a,
0: you like Candyman and Hellraiser, right? You've seen the first Hellraiser, at least.
3: I have never seen the first Hellraiser movie, oh. but I love Candyman. I know he didn't direct that movie, but I It was adapted that movie. from his work. It, you love Candyman, yeah. that
0: has a very, I think, similar vibe. I think that that captures a lot of like the similar vibes of like Hellraiser. And Nightbreed, which is much more of like a weird dark fantasy movie, um, hmm, okay. which is interesting because that, that one's about, like, this group of people who live in a, an entire, like, underground civilization beneath a cemetery. And they're all weird sort cool. of, like, fantasy humanoid kind of creatures with amazing makeups. They're wild. Um, and David Cronenberg's
3: in it? He just pops I've up in anything, that's really. This is
0: my Jason X. This especially, this is David Cronenberg. This is his look.
3: That's what he looks like? That's his mask so nice. that
0: he wears as a
3: serial so killer. fucking cool, man.
1: He unz- I've seen that mask before, and I never knew it was from Nightbreed. Yeah,
0: he so unzips insane. out of that, man. Yeah, Wild. Uh, by the way, Adam painted that's that, awesome. my former co-host. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the end of Between the Lines here. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, repeat our titles for everybody. Brian, you're enough, just so everyone can uh, remember this and add it to their watch list if they haven't.
3: Uh, yes, I had uh, Tommy Lee Wallace's Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. And I had the 1990 film
1: Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Night. And I had Clive Barker's 1995 neo-noir supernatural horror movie Lord of Illusions
0: yes we're gonna go ahead and uh, start wrapping up the show here but uh, you know we got some business and stuff to attend to before the season ends uh, because we gotta thank some people we gotta thank Burial Grid for our music throughout the show purchases music at BurialGrid.com shout out to Burial Grid who has a new album coming out uh, Waves of Quietus which you can get over at uh, BurialGrid.com you can uh, currently order that it would come out today the day this episode's releasing on the 31st. And uh, also, we just want to shout out that uh, it's going to be the last album that uh, the artist will be doing under Burial Grid as a name. He's going to be doing a lot more work uh, under his real name of Adam Michael Kozak. So uh, make sure to look out for that particular name as he has some projects cooking up. And uh, yeah, just a shout out to him for all the great music he does uh, for us and elsewhere. Uh, Thanks to Michelle Kyle for her artwork. Uh, Find her at mishkyle ninety six on Twitter. And uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters uh, over at patreon.com/cinema number 2 letter where for just $1 a month you all get to, you know, vote for certain movies that we cover uh, either on the Patreon or on the main feed and also hear bonus content and Brian throughout October we've been doing a lot of stuff because we've got a bunch of different reviews that have come up for stuff like Exorcist Believer which we did with Krishan. If you want to hear more Exorcist talk you can become a patron and hear that. Uh, but also reviews for, for, like, Saw X, The Creator, Killers of the Flower Moon, whatever other things that we might do. Uh, but along with that, we would have just recently released our Universal Monsters drive-in thing, where Brian and I mm-hmm. went to a drive-in, and I showed him a bunch of Universal Monster movies. Uh, and then uh, also the Friday the 13th full franchise, which you mentioned. We talked about every single Friday the 13th movie. Yes, we over did. Over the course of, with a time <laughs> limit, we should mention of. Each movie we talked about for 13 minutes. And we ended up with a three hour runtime. <laughs> Which is we pretty. We lost económico. our minds. <laughs> we lost our mind. That's true. We did go insane. We were possessed by the Gemini Killer, I think, at that point. Because <laughs> we became catatonic. Um, but but yes, we. we that's also up there. Are also, a bunch of my Dragon Con panels I would have released by this point, like the M. Night Shyamalan panel I did, and the Evil Dead panel, and a couple others I'll definitely put out around this uh, Halloween season. And I just want to shout out that. Um, if all goes right, um, I'm announcing a new monthly podcast on the Patreon. Uh, we've we've talked, you might come up on this show, but this is sort mm-hmm. of like a spinoff thing uh, where I'm doing this with Tori, who's a friend of the old show, will be on maybe a future main feed episode, who knows, uh, but he uh, and I will be doing a show called Marco Polo, an Adult Swim podcast, where basically we're going to be doing randomized sort of generated things we're going to be talking about. Sorry, two different, uh, maybe, episodes of a show uh, from an Adult Swim show. Like, for example, we'll be covering the Halloween episode of Smiling Friends, which we got randomly. So we just figured, let's put it out on Halloween. Um, And then an episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is an underrated great show that I love that also fits sort of the spooky season. So that should be up on the Patreon, and we're going to do that show once a month, roughly. Uh, And uh, it should be fun. But, uh, of course, we also have to thank somebody here we have to thank our guest Krishan thank you so much for coming yes, thank lovely you. to have you on this and the Patreon thing which like I said earlier we just recorded that but you all would have heard that weeks ago by the time this comes out so thank you for your delayed two part <laughs> front on the show basically
1: keeping them in suspense yeah. <laughs> thank you I appreciate you guys having me it's been awesome talking about Believer talking about that talking about Exorcist 3 two movies that could not be more different from each other, but it's been (laughs) awesome. We run the gamut today. uh, Got a lot of thoughts out on the exorcist as a whole. Um, Curious to see if we'll come back together and do it for deceiver. We'll see. Remains to be seen. We'll see. I
0: don't know if we can (laughs) handle that, Um, but uh, do you have anything to plug for anybody out there?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Um, You can follow me on letterboxd.com. John Baker should give you the give you the account, but if not, um, I'm the cinephile two I's instead of an L. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Comrade Chris with two K's instead of C's, and uh, yeah, I do a lot of writing stuff, so you can find that at Inverse or Filmcrit.com. Yes, for sure,
0: and uh, we also, uh, you know, if you want to follow us and our rinky-dink operation over here, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever other social media sites you use. I'm not going to maybe mention another one, um, but at cinema number two letter will be there cinema number two letter. And uh, you can find me on places like, you know, letterboxd and other places at not the who's Tommy. I also do some writing on uh, MarianiThomas.Wordpress.com and at film dash Of course. Yes. And uh, I also produce the uh, podcasts that's on their Patreon, uh, film cred review. Which you can hear all the backlog of episodes. Krishan was on one about horror from last year, and it was a really fun episode.
3: Uh, yeah, and you can find me on on Twitter still uh, at my uh, b r y a n d r a d e number three, or you can also follow me on Letterboxed. Uh, it's at my name, or it's on it's on my Twitter as well. So yeah, follow me on there.
0: And uh, for more of us, uh, you can uh, you know follow us on App Podcasts or wherever you get. Uh, your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you know want not listen to all the other great shows that are on uh, the same feed. And you can also dig into the archives and our pod being main feed for all the episodes from this season on horror and last season, as well as all the old Double Edge Double Bill stuffs over there. And if nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, even though for the $1, we get it. It's totally cool. We would like, though, if you could, just uh, for you to spread the show around, like rate, review it, or just... Share the show around to give us more visibility out there, especially as we continue to fester in the bottom of this mental institution where we just keep ranting and raving. (laughs) As we are wont to do between seasons. That's really what we do. Right, Brian? We just rant and rave. This is true. This is (laughs) Yes. So this is the end of the season, Brian. How do you feel? You feel sufficiently scared
3: and terrified (laughs) after this whole horror season? I'm trembling right now in my seat because of how scared I am, actually. Especially on the spookiest days of all Halloween when this is coming out. <laughs> That's true. Oh, it was a great, great season. Great movies to talk about. Um, some really great episodes. Yeah, it was a really fun time.
0: Well, on that note, we should mention, so we'll be taking a break here, obviously, as we are one to do four seasons. Mm-hmm. So um, we will be coming back in a couple weeks, though, uh, for our last season of the year. Which will start on November 21st the Tuesday of Thanksgiving Week, uh, where we will be, uh, you know, doing our Disney season, which you know the patrons would have voted already for our E for egregious pick, and we'll be announcing what won that poll from our patrons, as well as, you, know, all the other ones that we'll be doing. Uh, Brian and I have pretty much finalized the schedule, and uh, I'm very mm-hmm. excited to have that particular, especially you, know, 100 years of Disney ending the year yep. on that, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting interesting batch of movies we got.
3: <laughs> yep, very exciting though.
0: Yes, and so there'll be a little bonus episode as was with this season, where we'll announce everything uh, for that, so expected you know a week or two before that particular uh, episode drops on the 21st, like I said. but until then everybody, uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.
1: Happy Halloween.